You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies. Why are you listening? Was it because we made you an offer you couldn't refuse? I'm assuming that's true. I'm assuming you wanted to listen to our episode on The Godfather, Mario Puzo's The Godfather from 1972. One of the most universally acclaimed movies of all time. Maybe second tier after things like Wizard of Oz and Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and stuff like that, if only because it's violent and a little less family-friendly than some of those titles. A but little less family-friendly than little The Wizard less, of Oz? A little less family-friendly than The Wizard of Oz. Huh. If I was making a list of family-friendly movies, Wizard of Oz would be right there near the top, and The Godfather, I don't know. I don't know Somewhere close to the top. I don't know if it even places yeah. top ten. Honestly. Well, folks, I've got my my capos and my you'd think I'd remember some godfathery terms. I've got my I've got my consigliere, Mr. Benjamin Solzer, here today. Here I am. Am I a wartime consigliere? I don't know, Ben. We'll find out. Mm. We could have done a lot with a wartime consigliere. I bet you could. Like like Pop had. Ben? Have I even introduced Nathan? myself? Maybe not. Why don't you introduce me? And you can also introduce the godfather of cinema discussions himself. I will. It's Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. That's right. Yep. Here I am. And it's Jake Minsel, the pastor, who's the godfather of cinema. How are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm great. You say, Ben, Ben, what have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you say. <laughs> Oh, guys, we're talking about The Godfather today. I think I mentioned that once or twice. It's a classic. I think it might be number two or number three on AFI's top 100 movie list. I did not double check, but... Citizen Kane, Casablanca, Godfather, I believe. Citizen Kane, Casablanca, Godfather. Why don't you confirm? Confirming away. It is a movie that for a lot of people sums up certainly gangsterism it's true some people would say it sums up the american experience some people would say it's a great movie about capitalism some people would say it's a great movie about generational sin about fathers and sons it's got everything it's got garroting it's got explosions a couple explosions it's got plenty da- of headshots plenty of headshots it's got dancing it's got intense conversations between adversaries it's got people playing their cards close to the it's got nudity chest yeah it does have that it does have that we'll talk about it i knew it was coming i closed my eyes all right the godfather ben what is your godfather experience my friend what baggage do you bring to the godfather you did used to work for the mob i used to work for the mob but i don't think that plays into this yeah no i don't think that that doesn't have anything uh, to do with it we won't mention that again i saw it when i was a teenager and i saw it like the other day there you go that's it I mean, I don't, let's see, grew up hearing about it, hearing about the famous horsehead scene, didn't watch other mafia movies, watched it, didn't like it because it's grim and terrible and dark. It's about moral downfall. There you go. Did you feel differently about it this time or maybe? maybe. Yeah, I felt differently about it this time. This time I was like, this movie's great. <laughs> I have no reservations. It's, it's part of Ben's moral downfall. <laughs> There's nothing to warn anyone about. Just watch it, learn lessons from it. No, that's not what I thought. But I did think it was great. We can, we'll talk more about that as we get into it. It's a 
complicated, shall we say problematic movie, but yeah. it's greatness is pretty hard to deny. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, Jake, your godfather history. This is the first time I've seen it. I hadn't seen it before. So that's it. I've seen, I guess, some things downstream of it. I've seen Goodfellas. I've seen Reservoir Dogs. I've seen, you know, I'm familiar enough with the phrases and the catchphrases. And Did you know the horse head was coming? Yep. Knew the horse head was coming. I mean, you kind of know the horse head's coming when the guy's like, it's my horse. I love it. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> I mean, you know the horse head is there. And then because you, how do you not know that's a thing? Right. And then, yeah, then it's just broadcast. Oh, there's the horse. Here comes the horse head. Real horse head, by the way. <laughs> Peta was not happy. I don't know if Peta existed back then, but those people, those kinds of people, we're not happy. I mean, they, they didn't kill a horse. They, I mean, they did kill a horse, but they didn't kill a horse for the movie. They just got a horse that had been killed, I think, to make dog food and got its head. So there's a fun mm-hmm. fact. <laughs> from, fun fact. From The Godfather. So my history of The Godfather, my dad grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, lovely Bridgeport, Connecticut, which, which to hear my dad tell it and to, based on my own research, post my dad telling it, was and maybe is sorry bridgeport listeners a miserable crime ridden hellhole my dad describes his childhood not unlike goodfellas if people know goodfellas not because he became a gangster but just the scene of the little boy looking out the window and seeing all these flashy mobsters pull up and have money and clothes and women and walk into their little storefront and walk out my dad said that's a very true to life kind of to his feelings of the time so he felt like he grew up around these people. He knew these people. And he didn't like The Godfather. He did like Goodfellas, actually. And he showed me Goodfellas, not as a cinema experience, but as a, I want you to understand my life. I want you to understand these people. So here's Goodfellas. It's the best movie about actually who these people are. And folks, if you haven't seen Goodfellas, it probably is the best movie, I guess, in terms of sort of a documentary feeling of who these people actually are. It's also for that reason pretty grim and full of horrific horrific violence and f-bombs and all that stuff but according to my dad who grew up with it it is the best movie for kind of capturing something about the low-level hoodlum Uh, not so much about the the godfather's about like the top people the the goodfellas is like if you made a whole movie about luca brazzi and the, the minions the people that actually do the dirty work the soldiers so my dad never wanted me to see The Godfather. And this is such a weird memory, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I made a bet with my... D- <laughs> this is a very strange memory. But some paper got wet. And my dad said, well, that paper is irretrievable. And I said, I'll make a deal. If this paper dries out and we can still use it, I get to watch The Godfather. And he said, okay, the paper will never dry, dry out. But I, I'd made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> and then we put a... That's really weird. Isn't that a weird memory? And then we put... <laughs> A fan on the paper, the paper dried out, and my dad said, oh, well, I guess you get to watch The Godfather. So, very strange story. Don't remember anything else like that happening. It's such a strange story that I barely believe it's true, but why would I make something like that up? I mean... You had a dream. Maybe I had a dream or something like that, but... Yeah, I saw The Godfather. I saw How old the, would you have been? Oh, probably 13, 14, 15, somewhere in that range. The, the age when every young boy wants to watch The Godfather. I came of age watching VHSs of the original Star Wars and then VHSs of the Star Wars Special Edition and Special Editions, I should say. And then discovering Spielberg, discovering Lucas, discovering those guys. And then I kind of wanted to know 
who else there was. So I discovered Alfred Hitchcock. I discovered Stanley Kubrick. And then probably next on the list was Francis Ford Coppola. Or Coppola, I should say. I always want to mispronounce his name. But he's one of the guys. He's one of the guys. He did The Godfathers. He did Apocalypse Now. He did The Conversation with Gene Hackman, which is a really weird, paranoid, grim. I really don't like that. I don't, I don't like it at all either. But there's no denying Francis Ford Coppola's talent. I mean, he's one of the big ones. He's one of the great ones. He's one of the... Well, we'll talk about him. We'll talk about him. But as a budding film dude, cinephile, I wanted to know. And The Godfather has its place in history. It's, it's enticing to a young man because it's famously violent. It's famously got action. And, you know, it famously ushered in a certain kind of screen violence. Like, you didn't really see stuff like this before The Godfather. Boy, did you see it after The Godfather. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde, which was 1969, I think, where it ends with their bodies getting riddled with bullets, similar to how Sonny goes out in The Godfather. And then The Godfather, a couple of years later, did the same thing. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention our head pastor from the old days. Tim Bailey always tells a story about walking out of The Godfather. It's kind of his placeholder for violence in movies. He walked out after the Sonny killing because he's just like, I don't want to see that kind of thing. I don't remember that story. I don't either. Yeah, well, you know, it probably stuck with me because I'm a cinephile and a Godfather fan. So I always felt the rebuke of it more than you guys were like, okay, well, never seen it. Don't care. I always remember, what was the movie that I remember? Clockwork Orange or something like that, maybe? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think I've heard him talk about Clockwork Orange, but I don't know how he would have ended up in the theater for Clockwork Orange. It's more simple to imagine him ending up in the theater for the godfather because it was a huge phenomenon everyone was seeing it and yeah you don't necessarily you know you know it's going to have some provocative content when you walk in but you don't necessarily know how extreme which it'll be interesting to talk about the violence because it does it play as more brutal does it play are we so desensitized downstream of it i've got thoughts about that but we'll talk about it all there's so much to talk about about the godfather including its making and its conception so you guys ready for some context on yeah, the Godfather. Yeah. All right. Okay, I will read to you from an interview between Larry King and Mario Puzo. Puzo is explaining how he wrote the novel The Godfather. He says, "No, what happened? I don't know if he talks like this. I'd published two novels for which I'd received very fine reviews, especially the second one, The Fortunate Pilgrim, and I didn't make any money. I looked around and I said, gee, I've got, you know, I was working as a government clerk and then I was working on the magazines, the adventure magazines, and I figured... I had five kids, and I thought, I'd better make some money. And Larry King says, so you did this as a, let's write a book that's going to appeal to people. Mario Puzo, yeah, yeah, right. Larry King, so The Godfather was not anything beneath your quality? Well, or, or was it? I always wish I'd written it better, because I went away to Europe, and I left the manuscript with my publisher, and I said, I've got to do one more rewrite. But when I came back, they had sold the book for 400 $50,000 to a paperback publisher, and I didn't dare rewrite it. I figured they would take their money back. They wouldn't like it. So Mario Puzo always kind of had a love-hate relationship. I mean, he loved it. He never disowned it, but he, he always wanted to apologize for the fact that it wasn't a work of quality in the same way that the movie was the movie is the genius thing that came out of the godfather franchise it is the thing that like if you talk to movie critics no movie critic is going to say that the godfather is anything but a masterpiece maybe it's a masterpiece they don't like but they'll admit that it's a masterpiece you talk to book critics you'd be hard pressed to find one that really respects 
Godfather of the Book. Godfather of the Book is a fine pot boiler, I guess. I've never read it. I think it's a decent amount more sexually graphic than the movie is. I think the movie cut a lot of stuff. Like, for example, the stuff that's alluded to at the very beginning, The Undertaker, his whole story with his daughter. I think we're going to get into all of that in a pretty graphic way. So the movie's relatively elegant and restrained compared to the book, at least. I think it takes out a number of violent incidents and a bunch of sexual stuff. All Sonny's playing around with women and all that stuff is just much more pronounced in the book. And the book is a trashy pot boiler, is my point. And he wrote it for money. That's the other thing. But he did a lot of research. He introduced a lot of mafia terms. He kind of put together a lot of ideas that were floating around about the mafia and a lot of real facts about the mafia. I mean, it's, it's not dissimilar to what George Lucas did with Star Wars or what they did with Raiders of the Lost Put together Ark. real facts about that galaxy. About the galaxy far, far away. And yeah, about Jedi Darth Vader. And, and, yeah. Somebody, somebody <laughs> finally had to collate all this. Lightsabers plus Jedi. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm saying is all the old serial stuff was floating around. Somebody just needed to collate it and do it better. Yeah. Puzo took all the sort of gangster lore, the stories about Frank Sinatra and how he got his career. Sinatra, I mean, if you guys didn't pick up on it, uh, Johnny Fontaine is Frank Sinatra. Stuff like that. That He just took all the kind of stuff that was in the pop culture floating around and all the kind of real stories that got told about gangsters and all the kind of history of it and put it all together. So that being said, I thought it'd be fun and interesting to talk about the real mafia a little bit because you, you kind of do need that context for this movie. The thing about mafia movies like this is that they are talking about a real thing. It really, I, th- I think it always surprises me somehow. I watch a movie like this and I'm like, well, it's obviously so stylized and criminals are just criminals. They just do things like how could there be a code? Once you've given yourself to a life of violence and of depravity, how does that get organized? The organized element of organized crime is hard for me to actually wrap my head around and believe in, at least in the way that a movie like this portrays it. I don't know if you guys are, feel the same or if you're just like, yeah, organized crime, of course, is a thing. <clears throat> I remember talking with a kid at a, I went to space camp. It was like a gift from my grandparents or something. You really went to space camp? I really went to space camp in Alabama. Oh. Yeah, and my my buddy for the week was this really foul-mouthed kid from... New York or Brooklyn or something, we would have been maybe 12, 13. And he was, this is the kind of kid who would talk inappropriately about sex all the time. And I was just a sheltered Christian kid. And I was like, ah, but for whatever, but he was the only, he was the closest thing to a buddy I had. And he kept telling me about how he was in gangs, street gangs. And the street gangs, they had rules. <laughs> and there would be times in the summer when instead of having a brutal fight, they would have a water gun fight, like ordinary gangs of boys, like not gang gangs, but just kids playing. Yeah, And it would not break out into violence because that would go against kind of the code. So some of this I'm extrapolating, some of this he told me, but I feel like that always made sense to me. Mm -hmm. It just, it feels natural to believe in criminals with codes and all that sort of thing. But I had a similar sort of experience growing up where to me, organized crime makes as much or more sense than like 
organized rule of law hmm. government because that's just the way that kids organize themselves. Yeah, that's right. Kids organize themselves, boys organize themselves into gangs and mm-hmm. there's hierarchy and there's codes and there's pecking order and it doesn't hold together. Initiation the, rituals. Initiation, it, it doesn't hold together on the playground unless everybody, and you, you tend to have these sort of like mob bosses on the playground. Like I, I grew up in public school, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the way it was. And then somebody moves to the area and tries to like, assert dominance or break things up. Like Moving you just on the territory. Sort of, yeah, that sort of thing happened. And I just sort of grew up with like kind of the playground gang mentality. But also then you would have people that you would watch who would be pulled into actual street gangs, mm-hmm. you know, as you grew up. Um, so that was just always a real thing. So it made sense. Okay, like this is just sort of naturally how we organize ourselves and how it works. And so of course it would get more sophisticated and more intense. And it, it has to, in order... Because everybody's in it for what they want, mm-hmm. right? So you, you have to have some kind of code or some kind of rules or something that protects everybody's ability to get what they want out of it. Otherwise, if it does descend into pure chaos, then it doesn't benefit anybody. The power of the gang leader is his ability to organize and impose some kind of order mm-hmm. on the other boys. So yeah, I guess to me, that whole world just feels sort of inevitable apart from the grace of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I agree with that, of course, mentally, in, in terms of just emotionally, intuitively. Uh, like, the myth of serial killers, I, I've always understood, and it makes sense to me. Individual depravity, gone wrong, lines crossed, unhinged, unhinged can turn into something truly monstrous. I don't have any problem believing that. But the idea that you could impose hierarchy and order on... The idea that there's this whole system... And anyone could walk in, like like a playground, you could just look at it and be like, whose rules? Why? Now, of course, if you do that to gangsters, then you wind up sleeping with the fishes. But, yeah. but the idea that everyone is adhering to this fake thing, maybe I'm just too much of an individualist. Maybe I went to a Christian school and so just didn't deal with gangs and cliques and things like that as much and didn't have friends that were into this stuff. Who knows? We could psychoanalyze me all day. but. That sort of thing does not make as much sense to me intuitively, but I but I get that of course it exists. Per the FBI, you guys want to do? Do you have a guess who the big mafia organized crime people are these days? Like what ethnicities? What groups here in twenty twenty two in America? Mm-hmm. You mean Mexican cartels? That's what I would have guessed. You know, the FBI does not actually even list them on their organized crime watch page. Gonna have to go across the water to to get to the yakuza or something. No, actually, it surprised me. They have well, yes, Japanese and Chinese and other Asian crime Mm -hmm. rings, but the big ones actually these days that the FBI is really worried about, at least insofar as they want to share the information with the public, is the Russians, uh, mobsters who fled to the U.S. in the wake of the Soviet Union collapsing back in the whatever that was, late '80s, early '90s. People from Africa, Nigerian princes, people from Nigeria. Chinese, Japanese, and then Eastern European, just like in every bad Jason Statham kind of action movie ever, Eastern European, mm-hmm. Euro trash, kind of hungry mm-hmm. Romania dudes. Yep. That's kind of where you're going to find the mob. But Italian organized crime is still with us, still big, still organized, somewhat on the level. I mean, we don't know, like we, we only have so much information about it, but Italian organized crime is still 
really, really big. Global organized crime profits $1 trillion per year. I mean, this is a big thing. This is something that we should all understand about the world we live in, how much of it is actually run and defined by organized crime. Italian organized crime, as far as the FBI knows, has 25,000 members total, more than 3,000 members and affiliates in the U.S., mostly in the Northeast, also Midwest and California and the South. Does the FBI list itself on its list? Yeah, man. (laughs) That's the question, right, man? The deep state, all a bunch of criminals. Well, the Godfather teaches us many things about Mm. the corruption of people holding the strings. Canada, South America, Australia, parts of Europe are all known for their organized crime, for their drug trafficking. Drug trafficking and money laundering are the the main things that these organizations do, particularly the Italians. Vito Corleone, there actually were people like Vito, Vito Corleone. The movie's not stacking the deck in his favor when it says he didn't want to get into narcotics. There were those people particularly first-generation Italian immigrants, which is what Vito is. The people that came from Italy came, had an old-school way of looking at things and actually thought that we could do this business with honor and didn't want to get into narcotics, probably more because of the spotlight that it brought than that they were just so darn noble like Vito mm-hmm. Corleone is. But basically, these days, organized crime, you could think of it more in the mold of a Breaking Bad or something like that. Drug trafficking, heroin money laundering, but they do also do illegal gambling, political corruption, murders, bombings, protection rackets, all this stuff. But the thing I really wanted to talk about is Sicilian organized crime, because I think it's absolutely fascinating. It is, they, they call themselves Cosa Nostra, which means, anybody know? It means our thing. It or literally, thing. literally just means. Cosa, not Casa. Casa, yeah, Casa, sorry, C-O-S-A. Gotcha. Sicily, you guys know Sicily. It's the big, it's the island that the the boot is kicking. Yep, it's the it's the big island right right there yep. to the what direction is that? West of Italy. In eight, so in eight in the eighteen hundred, you never go up against the Sicilian when death's on the line. You never. Well, the God, if the Godfather teaches us nothing else. <laughs> if the movie This Sicilian by Michael Cimino with Christopher Lambert <laughs> teaches us nothing, <laughs> <laughs> if it teaches us nothing, and it does. <laughs> Okay, so Sicily in the 1800s is ruled by feudal, feudal barons. It's still basically under feudalism. In 1860, Italy annexes Sicily and is like, hey, feudal barons, we're going to split up your property among private citizens in the church. So, Jake, you be Italy, and Ben, you be the citizens of Sicily. All right. So Jake's like, ah, we're, we're going to take all the property from the nobles, and we're going to split them up and give it to all you. All your base are belong to me. <laughs> I don't think so, my friend. <laughs> no, actually, you're happy because. Oh, sorry, I forgot who I was. You're the citizen. Already confused. Yay! <laughs> the, the, the barons would be like, I don't think so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, now Ben, there's a problem though. Now that you all yeah. own land, now that land has been divided up among a bunch of people instead of just a few mm-hmm. f- feudal barons, and now that all these people are like jumping classes and stuff, there's all these disputes. There's all there's a bunch of stuff to fight about. There's violence and stuff so so you'd be all sad <laughs> mama mia <laughs> and then jake is italy you're gonna be like we'll give you 350 policemen for your whole island to take care of this problem here's some thugs that can do jack squat to help and then ben you're oh. like you're like oh that's not enough <laughs> we and need them more <laughs> also the, the, the feudal commons are gone so we really need food <laughs> <laughs> and we're starving <laughs> 
Okay, and uh, now that's your problem. Now I'll I'll play the part of the bandit, the Sicilian bandits. Ha ha ha! We can get the whatever we want. We can rob people and do a highway robbery. And then Ben, you're like, oh no, we're a crime-ridden, violent hellhole. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> if only the feudal lords would come back <laughs> and save help, us. Help, help. Uh, now, so what Ben does, because he's overrun with crime, and Italy, Jake, is not really helping him. He's like, I got to take care of this problem myself. So what he actually does is he recruits former bandits. He finds the worst of the worst, the criminals, the very people that are taking advantage of him. And he says, I'm going to motivate you to hunt down your own people. If something is stolen then I'm going to let you take part of it if you can get it back for me. So Ben is basically going to hire a bunch of criminals to protect his goods and to retrieve them when they're stolen. So I like it. I give you the money. <laughs> Do your crimes for me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and and, and, the, and this, is, this is how the modern mafia is born. Basically, you have people that are ravaged and don't, I mean, it's, it's what you're kind of afraid is going to happen in a city like Portland or something, if it hasn't already. It's like, if, if you can't get actual rule of law, then you have to establish some kind of rule of law. And so the way that Sicily solved this problem was they paid a bunch of criminals to work for them and to work against the other criminals. And you can see how protection rackets and paying money for protection and all the kind of stuff that we know gangsters is doing. Uh, comes out of that. And by the mid-1860s, you have all the stuff. You've got codes of silence. You've got initiation rituals. You've got the mafia. It's just, it emerged really quickly out of the anarchy that happened when Italy took Sicily. And just, you got to be really careful about the way that you tear down fences. Nobody is arguing that the feudal barons were good, but they were just like, goodbye. Here's a, let's throw a grenade into the feudal system. And then it was just anarchy and a lot of bad stuff. And to this day, Italy is crime-ridden. They, they, they still haven't solved the problem. Mussolini came along, fascism in the early 1900s, or sorry, early 20th century, basically really cracked down on the mafia. The mafia did not do well during World War II. But then when Mu Mussolini died, again, you have all these GIs occupying Italy. It's thrown into chaos, and the mafia is like, yay, we can take advantage of this. But the thing that really impacts our story is that when Mussolini cracked down on the mafia, they all moved to Mexico. No, they all, all moved to America. What? America. Canada. America. I believe in America. Particularly places like Chicago, New York, and Sicilian thugs who were just used to doing this kind of thing in, in Sicily. It was very easy for them to be like, hey, we can take over this neighborhood and offer protection. We can take over this town. We can take over this. And then again, another Good intentions gone bad. Prohibition. Prohibition did so much for gangsters. It poured so much money into the coffers of organized crime because mm -hmm. it turns out people still wanted to have a drink. They were willing to pay for it. And organized crime had the apparatus, had the people. They were able to just move in. And I mean, really, there's no Don Vito Corleone. There's no gangster system without prohibition really taking what was a small phenomenon and blowing it up into a huge nationwide enterprise and pouring money into it, which leads to lots of organized crime. And Italians were the best because they had a history of this kind of stuff. And this leads to an all-out war between the different factions of 
organized crime through the 20s, through prohibition. Meanwhile, I mean, the Irish win in Chicago because Al Capone, you guys may have heard of Al Capone. He, mm-hmm. he, he just kills everybody and becomes the gangster kingpin there. But in New York, the Italians win. And this guy ascends to the position of the boss of bosses. His name is Salvatore Marzano. And he becomes the head of all gangsters in New York. And he actually forms the five families. He's like, we're going to divide this up into five families. And we're going to have bosses. And they're all going to report to me. I'm going to be the capo di tutti capi, the boss of all bosses. And he is is something of a Vito Corleone figure. He is what they called a mustache Pete, which is an awesome old-timey term for a Sicilian who came at the turn of the 20th century, someone who was an immigrant. But working for Salvatore Marzano is Charles Lucky Luciano, who works under him. And Ben, you can be Charles Lucky Luciano. I feel lucky. (laughs) And you're like, I'd really Smoke lucky strikes, drink lucky. Well, he's a lucky beer. guy. He's a lucky, lucky guy. And he really wants to work with the Jews because the Jews are good at money and they're good at being gangsters too. And the Italians won't work with them. But he's like, I'd. <laughs> so Ben. <laughs> Mamma mia. <laughs> I've got to work with the Jews. <laughs> uh, he particularly really wants to work with Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, who are both pretty famous gangster people. And Jewish sorts who are good at making money. Bugsy is Mo Green. Bugsy built Vegas. If you don't know Bugsy Siegel, he's one of the most famous mob figures because he had the idea for, hey, gambling is legal in this desert area where there's nothing. So if we build a city, I bet we can get people to come. And the mob built built Vegas from nothing. But Charles Lucky Luciano is like, I want to work with those guys. And his boss, Marizano, is like... I don't. So, of course, Marizano tries to have Lucky killed, but Lucky kills him first. Got him. (laughs) Uh, And Lucky Luciano becomes the father of modern organized crime in the United States. And he forms, instead of making himself the boss of all bosses like his boss had, which everybody resented and hated, he forms the commission. And the commission is exactly like what we see in the movie when Vito sits down with those guys kind of in the, towards the end of the second act and says, I want to make a deal to end this war. Mm-hmm. It's just the bosses getting together in a room and voting on stuff. And Lucky Luciano is the boss of bosses in everything but name, but he's ostensibly at least giving a vote to everybody. And, and every boss gets to approve new bosses. They get to vote on any members, any guy that's going to become made, like even in somebody else's family, we all get a vote on it. So he creates this really organized. This is the thing that I do find fascinating is that organized crime is actually really, really organized and has rules and constitutions into a thing called a commission where guys get together around a table and they vote. And it's just the Godfather with all its like rules and lore and stuff is not exaggerating any of that. It's really the first movie to get all that stuff basically right. And there's lots of famous heads of the commission. The most famous is a guy named Frank Costello, who is called the prime minister of the mob because of his wise counsel. He gave wise counsel. He was strategic. He was reasonable. And he liked to work with influential, regular, non-gangster businessmen. And he always discouraged his underlings from getting involved in the narcotics business. He is basically the type for Vito Corleone. And that's all you really need to know about gangsterism. That's most of what Puzo would have known when he wrote the novel. But the novel was a huge bestseller. 
was on the New York Times list for 67 weeks, sold over 9 million copies in two years. For a while, it was the best-selling published work in history. I think it's been overtaken by other things, the Da Vinci Code, whatever. But it was a big deal. And so Paramount Pictures (laughs) bought the novel. They bought it for cheap before it had taken off. They had just had a flop in 1969 with a movie called The Brotherhood, which starred Kirk Douglas, of all people, as a Sicilian mobster. (laughs) And people were just like, no, we're not going to go watch a movie with Kirk Douglas as a Sicilian gangster. So they made a, like, they did everything wrong, just a cheesy, cornball, bad gangster. Everything The Godfather gets so right, this movie got so wrong. And so they're like, we're going to buy The Godfather for cheap. We're not going to put a bunch of money in it because people don't like gangster movies. What they didn't realize is that People do like gangster movies. They just, just don't, don't like bad ones. They don't, yeah, they don't like The Sicilian with Kirk Douglas, which who can blame them. But legendary character, Robert Evans, we don't have time to talk about him, but he was the head of production in Paramount, and he's a, just a ridiculously colorful guy and very smart. And he, he says, the one thing we can do to make this movie good is we need to make it so authentic, he said, that you can, quote, smell the spaghetti, unquote. So... They decide they have to get an Italian director, and that's what really makes this movie is because they get one of the movie brats, Francis Ford Coppola, young, hungry, Italian-American movie director who hadn't had a hit yet, but they're like, we're going to entrust this low-budget project to him, and we're going to set it in the 1970s because a period picture makes too much money or costs too much. 1950s. No, in the 70s. They're, 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 they're going to make the movie. We've not, we've not made the actual movie yet. Okay. They've decided oh, that sorry. it's going to be set sorry. in the okay. 70s gotcha. when it's being made. Right. But we're going to pull it back. Follow you so now. what happens is they're like, we're going to make a small movie set in, the, in modern times. We're going to change the novel a bunch. But then as they start to make the movie, the novel keeps climbing in the bestseller charts. And Coppola is able to go to them and say, I need more money. I have to make this a period picture. And I cannot shoot it in California. I have to shoot it in New York if I'm going to get anything good and they end up agreeing to all of this francis ford coppola comes from the same generation we talked about before the the movie brats spielberg lucas people like that basically you can go you can listen to our jaws episode if you want a longer primer on them basically hollywood had lost all its power didn't know what it was doing tv had taken over they'd lost their ability to block book 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 theaters chains old hollywood was really struggling trying to figure out what kind of movies can we make the ratings code went away. The old ratings code, the Hayes Code, went away sometime in the 1960s. So suddenly they're able to make really provocative content. They're able to include things like violence and nudity to get people in the theaters. But they still don't know what kind of movies people are actually wanting to watch. And there's this demographic shift where instead of blue-collar 50-year-olds watching movies, primarily it's young, college-educated people. So the old Hollywood executives are like, we do not know what to do. And they're flailing and they hire a bunch of young guys just to try crazy things. And it becomes, it's what eventually gets us to Star Wars. It's what eventually gets us to Steven Spielberg's career. Martin Scorsese, all the kind of state, elder statesmen now were the young movie brat generation then. And Francis Ford Coppola is one of them. And he's just this guy, I think he worked to pay the bills in B-movies, maybe even in pornography for a while. But he's, he's young, he's hungry, and most importantly, he's Italian. And so they give him this movie, and it is a legendary, terrible production. Coppola has to fight them for everything. He has to fight them to get it set in the right period. He has to fight them to use the 
Nina wrote a, wrote a music, which they think is like way too serious. And just, you can go through the list of dumb decisions that the executives wanted to make. They hate the photography. They think it's too dark, too underexposed, like everything that makes this movie great. They're just like, yeah, why are you doing that? That's weird. We don't like it. And a couple is like, I don't know. I think it would be cool if we could just make this a masterpiece instead of the dumb pot boiler novel. The story actually is that we have George, as we, as for so many things, we have George Lucas to thank for this movie because George Lucas has a company with Francis Ford Coppola called American Zotrope. American Zotrope is in horrible financial shape. Coppola is offered The Godfather and he doesn't take it because he reads the first 50 pages of the novel and it's so sexually debauched that he's just like, I, I can't do this. I don't know what this is. This is, this is trash. And George says, Francis, you can make it into a good movie. Go ahead. We really need the money. What have you got to lose? And so Coppola finds an angle on the material. He decides he's going to make it about America. He's going to make it about capitalism. He's going to make it about the Italian immigrant experience, as opposed to the novel, which is just like Garrettings. And apparently, I haven't read it, but it's not particularly well regarded by like the bookening will never do The Godfather unless we intentionally want to do a trashy pot, pot, pot boiler or something. It's not a case of the book is better than the movie at all. But Coppola does work with Mario Puzo to write the script. Mario Puzo wants to write the script, of course, because writing the script means he will make even more money, which is what he's most interested in. But Coppola is really the architect of the movie. He's the person that understands the Italian experience. All his, his grandparents were immigrants. Like all the, the wedding scene, everything that really makes this movie sing comes from Coppola. I mean, he casts his whole family in the movie. Talia Shire is his sister. His dad's in the movie playing the piano. His dad was a famous composer, even wrote some of the music for the, the scene where they're all, there's a mob war going on and they're in a back room and there's just a, a dude playing the piano. That's Mr. Coppola. That's Sofia Cop Coppola, who went on to direct Lost in Translation and all that kind of stuff. She's kind of a famous art house director now. She's his daughter, and she plays the role of Connie's son, the baby that gets baptized and the, the greatest scene in all the movies. And the biggest fight that Coppola has is he wants to get Pacino and Khan and Duvall and Brando. That's who he sees. And the studio is like, no, we don't want any of those people. And the studio spends $420,000 on screen tests only to end up using all of Coppola's guys. But they go to Robert Redford, Martin Sheen, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty. They all turn it down for various reasons. They don't want to do it. The novel's trash. They don't understand it. They don't see it. So they can't get any of the big stars that, that they want. And so they just end up hiring the next generation of stars who all dined out on this movie forever. These guys are all New York theater actors, though, and they all come from basically the Lee Strasberg school, Lee Strasberg being the guy that brought the Stravolinsky method from Russia, the method, the method, method, method acting. acting, yeah. acting. Mm -hmm. And so these guys are all serious, artistic, young, hungry actors, and they all worship Brando, who was the original method, method actor. actor. Yep. Brando is the guy, even more than James Dean, Brando is the guy that brought that whole conception of method acting, which is where people have some confusion about method acting. People, when people think of method acting, they think of Daniel Day-Lewis and how he becomes the character and you have to call him the character's name on set and all that and kind of make, stuff. Think about making fun of Jared Leto. And... Right. Well, the joke I always hear is 
Nobody ever method acts as a good person. Nobody's ever like, mm-hmm. I'm playing a nice character, so I just have to do nice <laughs> things for every. It's always stories of Jared Leto having an excuse to be a, an extra creep. Because yep. he's playing the Joker, so of course he's molesting people, uh, mm-hmm. basically. And it's true. No, <laughs> nobody ever method acts as a nice person. <laughs> you don't hear many stories of like, Tom Hanks was in the zone and he made everyone call him Mr. Rogers and he went around and did <laughs> so many nice things for <laughs> but but that's not actually quite fair it's, it's true that there's a lot of narcissistic actors that use it that way but the method has more to do with you just have to live the experience you have to be feeling the feelings that the characters are feeling it doesn't actually mean you have to dress up as the character or you can't have lunch with somebody in between shooting scenes at least originally it means that if you're sad, you have to really make yourself sad. So you can do this a couple different ways. You can think about the time that your dog died and then you're standing over Brando as he's sick and you start emoting. And that is the school that, that's the Lee Strasberg school. That's the Pacino school of acting. It's like, you've got to draw on all of your experiences. Stella Adler, who introduced this and who influenced Brando the most, thought that that was pretty sick. Like she thought you shouldn't, draw on your own experiences that way there's something weird about it and i might agree with her i don't i don't know but to to actually i'm playing a death scene so i've got to dredge up the most personal thing that's happened in my life so that i can somehow feel these things mm-hmm. you know so brando's more just like a how do i get in the mood how do i make how, how do i imaginatively empathetically enter into who don vito corleone is and kind of become him um, all of which is distinct from the school of acting where you're just playing, you're just pretending, you're just saying words. Well, there's a stage acting has the advantage and disadvantage of not having the camera zoom in on your face and your facial expressions. And so what you have with stage acting is a whole sort of like code of this is how we portray sadness. This is how we portray joy and mirth. It's heightened mm-hmm. for the stage but it's acting yeah in that sense right but when you pull the camera into the equation it's hard to act without feeling the feelings in a way that's good that sells it because people pick up on your face right and knock the method all you want but the things that pacino does in this movie without i think this might be pacino's best performance and he never does anything and yet you know exactly what Michael's thinking. Like there's so much, there's such a psychologically rich life of Michael Corleone and yet the guy's completely buttoned down. I don't know that in the later Godfather movies, he has some moments where he yells at people and stuff, but I don't know in this movie whether he ever actually raises his voice. It's certainly not the Pacino that you're used to. He does with his wife at the end. She's asking about his affairs. Enough! Yeah, yeah. But that's the one moment and it's at the Mm -hmm. very end and it's Mm -hmm. when he's got the most it's the punchline of the movie but there's so much that's going on behind his eyes that but there again a a non-method actor might say you know what the way i play that is by shifting my eyes this way or by moving my lips this way by there's there's outward in ways and there's inward word out ways and inward out has won culturally in terms of where actors are today and in terms of the way that actors like to think of themselves and mm-hmm. portray themselves. It in certainly the media. is more romantic in terms of the stories that, and the myth making that people. Uh, yeah. But I, but, but I love the old school of it's different. It takes some getting used to, but I love just the, a Cary Grant, somebody who 
I don't know. I don't think Cary Grant ever is like living the experience of his character. He's just coming in and saying lines as Cary Grant. And that's that's great. I li- I just like hanging out with Cary Grant. But anyway, these guys are all enamored with that school. They're all some of the best representatives of it. They all go on to be big stars because of it. And they all worship Marlon Brando. They just worship Marlon Brando. He's one generation before them. And he is the guy that brought all this stuff into the mainstream. Stanislavski system, I said the guy's name, the Russian guy that developed method acting. But Brando is the original Jared Leto. He is the original difficult, gets in the press for doing crazy things actor. And he made a big splash with the stage production and then the movie of Streetcar Named Desire, Stella, Stella, and then had some hits and was, was big in the 60s. But then by the 70s, people are done with Brando. He's box office poison. He has not had a hit for years and years. There's a famous cable from the front office that was sent to Coppola and his guys. Will not finance Brando in title role. Do not respond. Case closed. There's like, there's no way we're putting up with this difficult guy who's also box office. There's just like, they have no interest in Brando. Puzo has always said that he wrote the role with Brando in mind that he thought Brando was the only person who could do it. I don't know whether that's after the fact myth making or not, but Brando hears about the movie and he's Brando. This will give you a picture of Brando. He's like, the mafia is so American. To me, a key phrase in the story is that whenever they wanted to kill somebody, it was always a matter of policy. When I read that, I thought about McNamara and Johnson, all the architects of the Vietnam War. So Brando's political. I mean, Brando's just Mm -hmm. an annoying guy. Um, (laughs) Although I did want to tell the story of the chicken. One of the first, Stella Adler realized Brando was a genius. She's the, the acting coach that brought the method acting and all that. She has all her actors and they're doing these dumb exercises. And she says, pretend like you're a chicken when a nuclear bomb go- is coming down. That's, that's the exercise. And so all the actors start running around and clucking and stuff. And Brando's just sitting there zen-like. And she goes up to him and she's like, what are you doing? And he says, I'm a chicken. What do I know about bombs? So that is, that is, also, that is also Brando. He's one step ahead. I mean, he is, he is his own kind of genius and there's no denying it. But the famous story is Coppola really wants Brando he can't convince the studio. And so he's like, I'm going to film a screen test, but I can't insult Brando by telling him it's a screen test. So I'm going to just say it's a camera test. We just need to figure out our cameras. So he brings a camera to Brando's house. Brando walks out wearing a kimono. <laughs> he's got blonde hair and a ponytail. He's overweight. I think he's 47. He's drug addled. He's everything. Coppola is just like, show me what you're going to do. And so Brando's like, okay. And Brando rolls up his hair and he takes some black shoe polish and he polishes his hair and he takes some Kleenex and stuffs them in his mouth. And he says, I think the Godfather probably had his throat slit one time. So I think he probably talks like this. And he just on camera transforms from a dorky narcissistic actor, Marlon Brando in a kimono with a ponytail into Don Vito Corleone, does it all neat parlor trick and just becomes the character and Coppola is blown away and he takes it to the executives, the same people who said there's no way. And they, before he hits play, say there's no way. And by the end of watching that, they're like, okay, fine. We have to do this. It it was undeniable to them. It's not one of those things where they didn't know what they were doing or what they had. And then no, they knew exactly what they had. 
and how powerful it was. Marlon Brando got the voice from watching tapes of real mafia depositions. He said that's how they talk. And his big note was powerful people don't need to shout. And I think that tells you everything about how he played Vito Corleone. So famous troubled production, but famously Coppola does win all the fights. He gets the music. He gets the photography. The thing about the photography is that it's shot in such a way that you can't lighten it. It's intentionally underexposed so much that if the studio goes in after the fact and tries to brighten it, there's nothing to brighten. (laughs) It's just blacks and then people's faces emerging out of darkness. Mm -hmm. The photographer was a guy named Gordon Willis, very famous photographer, cinematographer from the period. He was called the Prince of Darkness because he liked to film movies exactly like this one. And he's a genius. He's arguably the best, my favorite cinematographer of all time. What else did he do? I mean, he did God. He did all three Godfathers. He's most famous for those. He did Woody Allen's Manhattan, beautiful black and white photography. If you ever saw that one, he did all the president's men, not movies that I, it's all that kind of seventies movies that I don't like, Mm -hmm. but man, what a great, what a great photographer, gritty seventies guy. And then they get Nino Roto to do the music. He's famous for doing Fellini movies. And he's like, you want that Italian kind of waltz feel. That's, that's what he does. And the executives hated it. Why isn't this music more exciting? Why is it so melancholy? And it's just like, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but man, idiots, <laughs> idiots. <laughs> okay, last interesting story about the production is everybody always wants to know about the real life mob connections. And there were those. So Joseph Colombo Sr., he's one of the heads of the five families. And he's like the media savvy mafia don he's like the guy that is aware of how the mafia is being portrayed and does not like it he does not like the fbi sticking its nose into his business so he creates the ridiculously named italian american civil rights league ostensibly to fight fbi persecution and to get the word mafia (laughs) removed from the vernacular because it's racist against italians Italians, (laughs) which is I won't draw the propaganda. I won't draw the BLM parallels or anything (laughs) like that, folks, but it's just so funny. A a real life murderous gangster who's like, I want to get the word gangster, I want to get the word mafia removed from the vernacular. And the way I'm going to do it is by creating the Italian American Civil Rights League and arguing publicly that this word is racist. How dare (laughs) you make Italians out to be mobsters? And he hated the Godfather book for the spotlight that it put on his business and he was mad about them making the movie so he did all this stuff he threatened to stop the teamsters like to just not let the teamsters work on the movie which would have cost them which would have just shut down the movie if he'd actually done it they called bomb threats into the studio business offices they called robert evans the legendary head of production guy he gets a call from a gangster who says take some advice we don't want to break your pretty face we don't want to hurt your newborn so get the bleep out of town. Don't shoot no movie about the family here. Got it. So Evans, the coward, says, I'm the head of production. The actual producer is Al Ruddy. And they tell him, when we kill a snake, we chop its head off. <laughs> That's amazing. So Evans gets off the phone, this phone call in the middle of the night. And he's like, oh, crap. So he gets the producer, Al Ruddy. And he says, you got to go talk to this Joe Colombo guy. You got to go see him and make a deal. <laughs> So Al Ruddy, the producer, goes to see Joe Colombo. Joe Colombo meets him, wants to act like an average guy. Joe Colombo's whole thing is like, we're just Italian-Americans. You know, he doesn't want to act like a mobster. But Al Ruddy, the producer, is like, why don't you come to my office and read the script and we'll, we'll make a deal. 
we'll 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 figure we'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Um, <laughs> trying to avoid saying that, but I suppose I should just say it. So the next day, Joe Colombo, one of the heads of the five family, shows up with two lieutenants, his Tessio and his Clemenza. And Al Ruddy, the producer, pulls out this 155-page script, and he gives it to the mob boss. And he's like, okay, read it. And so the guy puts on his reading glasses, and he starts reading. And he reads it for about five minutes. And then he's like, what does this mean? Fade in. What is, what is this? And the producer's like, yes, I've got him. I've got him. And so he's like, well, let me boringly explain this to you. And he explains it to him. And then, the, guy, and then the, the gangster reads on for a little while. And then he's like, oh, these bleeping glasses. I can't read with them. And he throws it to his Clemenza, his, his lieutenant, and says, here, you read it. And the lieutenant says, why me? And so he throws the script to another underling. The, the gangsters try and make head or tails of the script, and they can't. And finally, Columbo <laughs> grabs the script, slams it on the table, and says, wait a minute. Do we trust this guy? And they all say, yes, yes, boss. We trust this producer. So why the bleep do we have to read this script? Let's just make a deal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And so, they want, so the gangsters decide they want two things. They want the word mafia deleted from the script. And you'll notice I don't think the word mafia actually ever appears in this script. I, I think actually it wasn't going to anyway. But the producer's like, yeah, yeah, of course. No mafia. That's fine. I think maybe the evil film producer, the racist guy, the guy that is, is how Joe Colombo would have thought of a lot of white Americans. I think he might call Tom Hagen a, a mafia goon or something like that when it is part of his racist diatribe, diatribe. The other thing that they wanted was proceeds from the world premiere of the film to be donated to the American Italian League <laughs> <laughs> as a goodwill gesture. Oh. Um, and they invite Al Ruddy to a press conference where they'll announce this. And, and Al Ruddy, the producer, thinks, well, it'll just be a few local Italian papers but he gets there, there's a giant crowd, New York Times, <laughs> all the papers. So it becomes this giant <laughs> headline. I think the Wall Street Journal headline I have somewhere. Alleged mafia chief runs aggressive drive against saying mafia Godfather film cuts word. So the Godfather gets, gets, <laughs> gets you can, I don't know whether you want to say it's bad press or good press, but they get. No such thing as bad press exactly. for a movie like this. Yeah, they, the press is that the mafia has changed the movie and there's you mean a, the mafia has been involved in the production of a gangster movie what but maybe that's bad because it means we can't actually tell the story of the mafia if the mafia doesn't want well we got to gotta go and find out though right exactly so al ruddy is fired <laughs> the next day by the studio they're like you got your picture in the paper with one of the heads of the five family saying you're going to donate money to his league that everybody knows is corrupt and then the final horrible bullet point on this story, no pun intended, is that Coppola is in New York later that year shooting footage for the final baptism massacre scene. And as he's doing that, as he's filming, at that exact moment, Joe Colombo, this guy, this head of the, one of the families, is leading a Unity Day rally at the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And there's thousands of people there and a photographer, photographers are taking his pictures. One of the photographers puts down his camera, pulls out a gun, puts three shots in Joe Colombo's head. There'd been a hit called on him because all the other gangsters thought he was being way too public with all his Italian-American civil rights, like, Joe, let's just fly under the radar. So he was killed, and it sparked a giant mafia war. 
related <laughs> to the Godfather, and it happens insane. It happened as Coppola. I mean, literally, like you could make a, similar to the way it's shot in the movie. Michael says, "I will renounce Satan," and meanwhile, all the guys are getting shot. Coppola says, "Action!" Meanwhile, Joe Colombo, this gangster who'd gotten involved with the making of the Godfather, uh, blown away. So crazy crazy story that's crazy so you can't examine something without changing it (laughs) no yeah exactly it's the old documentary (laughs) rule i mean wow yeah yeah i think gangsters have never minded since the godfather was the last time the mafia really cared about mafia movies because what they've realized is they're good press the godfather was good press for them it, it elevated the conception of who they were. A certain kind of young man watches The Godfather and then really an idiot, but there is a certain kind of person who watches The Godfather and then actually wants to go be part of the mafia. And the mafia realized this was true. I mean, they like The Godfather. They like Goodfellas. It's, it's hard to make a Wages of Sin film. It really is. I think Wages of Sin films are harder than Wages of Sin books. So it's just, it's hard to show this stuff and do it any kind of justice without making it enticing one way or another. And the mafia found that that worked to their advantage. So they have never, I mean, obviously if somebody tries to squeal or tell too many stories. It's going to be producer, more people are going to be motivated to join the mafia than are going to be motivated to go out and join, join the, the FBI. FBI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nobody's going to wants to be McCluskey, the Irish cop at the end of this movie, whoever, whoever else you want to hmm. be, you don't want to be him, but man, the mafia looks kind of fun and like a family. And so family and where everyone dies. And <laughs> yeah. Intimidating. And you've seen the movie. So stay out of the way. Cause these guys are really brutal. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, so it, it works on business in a couple of different directions. Yeah. It's it. So uh, there's mobsters on record saying the movie elevated us. We, we liked it. We liked what it did for us. Uh, so that's the thing they kind of have to deal with, but the movie was hugely impactful. It was for a short time the biggest money maker of all time. I feel like every movie we talk about <laughs> that's entered the kind of conversation has that attached to it for a little while. But that was the biggest money maker of 1972. It obviously launched a generation of actors. I mean, Brando, De Niro, of course, also auditioned for a part in this movie as he would, being an Italian American theater actor that would have been around and hanging with these guys. It revitalized Marlon Brando's career. So we have this to thank for Marlon Brando's later work in Superman, Jake's favorite movie. and Yes, my favorite movie. <laughs> and Brando's greatest role. Yeah. <laughs> my friends. He and I would both agree. Yeah. We have this movie to thank for Pacino. We have this movie to thank for Robert Duvall. We have this movie to thank for Jimmy Kahn. He hasn't been as big, but he's still been pretty big. He just I mean, he's he got to be, I think it landed him his best role, which is the father of Buddy the Elf. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It helped launch just that whole style. The, I mean, Brando and James Dean and the guys that originally introduced method acting, they actually feel pretty stylized when you watch them today. They actually feel removed, one step removed from us. But I, but I think Pacino and Robert Duvall and people like that, they're just doing modern movie acting in The Godfather. It really, there's nothing, you don't have to like, put yourself in the headspace of I'm watching an older generation and how they act. So I think this movie, along with many other movies in the late 60s and early 70s, kind of launched what we would think of as the modern style. It also helped usher in movie violence in a new way. 
which I suppose we'll talk about. But that is the story of the making of The Godfather. Made lots of money. One best picture, one Oscar for Brando. Brando, of course, did not accept the Oscar, but sent a Native American woman to give a speech on his behalf, talking about how until Native Americans were treated right, Brando would not be accepting his Oscar from the Motion Picture Academy. <laughs> Marlon Brando, not a, not a particularly pleasant dude, but inarguably great. Yeah, oh, I mean, I mean there's lots of, uh, Diane Keaton's career was launched. I mean, hmm. she's, she doesn't get a ton to do in this movie, but what she does is memorable and she gets the punchline. Natalia Shire, who would go on, of course, to- Adrian! Yeah, to be Adrian. This movie just launched everything, launched Francis Ford Coppola's career. He'd do Godfather, he'd do- And therefore we have the greatest actor of all time given to us downstream. Who that? Well- Nicholas Coppola. Yes, yes, yes. Nick Cage, a famous not method actor, <laughs> a guy, a guy that uh, is what? in the old theatrical tradition <laughs> and very much sees himself that way. <laughs> Actually, that right? Nicholas Cage, famous for being able to do both, and you can usually tell which one he's doing in a <laughs> movie like Pig or Leaving Las Vegas. He's doing something more akin to method acting in a movie like Oh, I don't know. In a movie like uh, any of that. Jerry Bruckheimer stuff in a movie like, I don't know. He's acting. He's acting. All the clips, all the clips that go along, around. That's, that's not method acting. If you want a good example of modern, not method acting, Nicolas Cage and all the funny internet clips. That you <laughs> I have. love Nicolas Cage. I do too. I do too. And I don't have any particular, particular affection for method acting, although I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think just whatever gets you to the performance is fine with me as long as you're not hurting anybody or hurting yourself. Method acting does seem to attract a certain kind of narcissist. Anyway, that brings us to a movie about certain kinds of narcissists, namely gangsters. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) So, big picture thoughts. We're going to talk through this bad boy, highlight some of the highs and lows of Mario Puzo's The Godfather. By the way, Francis Ford Coppola, very classy about the naming and the credit of his movies. You'll, he is, of course, famous for doing Bram Stoker's Dracula and other, if there's an author, he'll always make it so-and-so's whatever. So Mario Puzo gets the credit. It is Mario Puzo's The Godfather, which is really not true. It's Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. But, I mean, Mario Puzo invented the characters. I don't need to be mean and take away credit from him, but I really think if they just straight adapted my understanding of the novel, then this would not be what it is. And I actually have tried to read the novel when I was a kid. It was just one of those, like, yeah, this is probably, I mean, I think I probably just thought this is an important, great book. You know, everybody's kind of heard of it. So I tried to read it, and it was just not very compelling. I don't know whether I'd seen the movie. I think I probably had seen the movie at that point. But this is not really Mario Puzo's The Godfather, just as Bram Stoker's Dracula is really not Bram Stoker's Dracula, unless, of course, you dig the, the, the story of Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder falling in love, Dracula and his bride, Mina Harker, if you think that that's a faithful way to ad- adapt, whatever it's called, Bram, the, the actual Bram Stoker novel, then, well, you're crazy. But anyway, what... Were you guys' big picture thoughts upon viewing this film? Ben, for the first time in a long time. Jake, for the first time in ever. It's beautiful. It's compelling. 
seductive, pulls you in, closes around you, creates a complete world. Didn't feel as suffocating to you as the first time. No, just rubbed me the wrong way the first time. I don't know what it was the first time exactly. We were talking about this off mic, but I, I, I want to say it left me a little depressed. Not that it didn't leave me a little depressed this time. But it was more of an aesthetic experience. Uh... I think so. I think the first time I just felt more more like, I don't want to be enclosed in this suffocating throwback world where everyone sucks and everyone dies. Mm-hmm. I don't have enough stability of my own. <laughs> <laughs> I suck. One day I'm going to die. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I don't, I'm not trying to be too existential, but I definitely didn't enjoy it. I don't like, even as a, even as a film nerd kid, I did not like 70s gritty, something about the whole era, French Connection, Serpico, movies were about cops and killers and the gritty urban city environment and just movies where the with this type of photography where it feels like there's kind of some mud on the lens. I don't like it. I, I think the period of this movie really helps me. The fact that it is a 70s movie about the 40s and the 50s makes it much more appealing. And I also just have always found it more approachable than other movies from the, the era. Without getting ahead of myself, uh, what was your big picture thoughts, Jake, as a first timer? I guess I feel the same way about 70s m- movies. I just, I can't think of a movie made in the 70s that I actually really like. I mean, unless it's Star Wars A New Hope or Rocky. Yeah. Right. The first Rocky. Like, there's but a even couple- the first Rocky has that 70s vibe about it that I don't like. I like the movie in spite of it. Not. Yeah. I mean, you could argue it makes the movie objectively better. Like, it makes it, it actually places you in the Italian Stallions world in a way that 80s superhero Rocky movies don't as much. But I know what you mean. Like, I've always found it that off putting about. Yeah. Rocky too. I had not seen it. I'm not a big fan of the genre, but it's undeniable. It's a very well-crafted movie. I'm glad to have watched it. Will you be wanting to watch Godfather Part 2? Probably. I mean, it's great. It's also undeniable, and it is also a, a classic. I mean, these movies are kind of so undeniable that I think there's very, you know, idiotic 15-year-old Nathan made an argument for a lot of wicked movies because he was like, well, it's part of the canon, and so I just have to watch Clockwork Orange. I'm sorry. I mean, I know it's bad, but you got to watch it to understand the... And I look down on that kind of argument as an older, wiser man, and so I should. But I would say The Godfather is one of a handful of films that you probably could make that argument about. I mean, it is so iconic, so undeniable, so a part of the American cinematic lexicon and experience and so influential on so many things and it's parodied everywhere and it's a part of the way that people understand the 1940s understand the immigrant experience understand italian americans like it's it's kind of just one of those movies which is one of the reasons we're doing it on this podcast i find it very appealing maybe maybe even in a bad way i just like the movie i don't want to be too gospel coalition-y about this, but I've been reading through the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, and I find all those stories very interesting. The stories of generational sin, the stories of kings and princes and traitors and loyalty and patriarchs. Like I just, it's an interesting world. And I find that I do, in fact, as someone who works in a church-adjacent ministry, I, I, I don't work in a closed loop evil system of gangsters, but I do, I do work in a world that is patriarchal. And so 
I like movies about the patriarchy. It's such a dumb way to put it. What's a smart way to put it? You like movies about men and how they lead and how they relate or and support each other or betray each other. Yeah, I'm very absorbed in the strategy of Michael. I'm very absorbed in who's who and why and what they're doing. I'm very absorbed in the son and the father and the sins. And we'll talk, I'm sure, a lot about what, if any, is the difference between Vito Corleone and Michael Corleone and whether that matters and all that kind of stuff. And you just, you don't get to see a lot of movies like that. They don't make a lot of movies about kings and princes. You can watch a Shakespeare play. You can watch Macbeth to get this kind of experience. You can watch King Lear. Uh, you can watch these kinds of things. Shakespeare, all six Shakespeare's great tragedies are this. I mean, mm-hmm. Macbeth basically is this. Just a, a good guy goes bad and murders everybody. And it's terrible. And oh, that sucks. But man, it was pretty. I mean, that's Macbeth and that's the Godfather. Mm-hmm. And I do find myself responding to these kinds of stories and entering in. I do find that they deal with things from my life. Not that we're all the three of us betraying each other or anything, you know. It's only one of us right, at yeah, a time, yeah. usually. <laughs> He's the traitor. <laughs> the one that approaches you after, after the funeral. After the podcast. Uh, I always thought it would be Jake. <laughs> ben Smarter. It's the smart play. No, no, no. It, it, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that the Christian church world that I've been a part of for a long time is, is an evil, closed-loop, <laughs> suffocating par- patriarchy that whacks people. That's not any of what I'm trying to say. But I am saying, like, as a man— who actually does have to deal with, as every man does, with generational guilt, with loyalty, with hierarchy, with all the stuff. They don't make enough movies about it. And A Godfather is one of the best. The fact that it happens to be a depressing, depraved gangster saga, to me, feels somewhat incidental. I would love, I, I don't know about biblical adaptations in general, but I, I do find myself fascinated by the story of David and Saul and Solomon, those kinds of characters, the tragedy of King Saul, the power that he was given and the way that he frittered it away. Those kinds of stories of men in power and what they do with it are really interesting. And it's not a subject that Hollywood always goes for. They tend to prefer young people and people in love and people in some kind of violent adventure story, which is great. I like all that stuff too. But men and power and hierarchy are a big part of all of our lives, especially as men. I just find like even the most sort of buttoned down scenes of this, Don Vito his meeting with Salazzo, where he tells him he can't do the narcotics business. And Sonny speaks out of turn and sets off the whole movie because Salazzo knows, oh, Sonny will go for this if I can just get rid of the old man. It's just Sonny says one dumb thing and gets all these people killed and lights the fuse that will eventually kill him and that will bring Michael into the family. And just that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Somebody in a back room says the wrong thing and then somebody over here gets murdered. That's all really interesting. I like movies about politics and dirty politicians. And I love the movie Lincoln. People don't like the movie Lincoln. I love the movie Lincoln because it's just about, well, Lincoln had to get this thing done. So he needed to get a bunch of people on his side. So he offered them patronages and stuff like this and made it happen. How does man in power make things happen? Just a really interesting, compelling and absorbing subject. And this movie's obviously arguably the best of that type of that, of the men in power doing things genre. The Godfather's right up there at the top. I mean, Citizen Kane, I guess you could kind of say maybe, but not really. I mean, Citizen Kane's about a dude and his life. Godfather's not about a dude and his life. It's about different dudes, different groups, different cliques bouncing off of each other. And so I find it very compelling from the, from the very first scene. I mean, just the 
the idea of the wedding going on outside and then all this stuff happening in a dark, beautifully lit, almost medieval room where the most powerful man in America sits petting his cat, you know, <laughs> while his <laughs> while his serfs come and <laughs> beg him for favors. Yeah. And what he'll do for people and when and Bonasera, Bonasera, why did you treat me so disrespectfully if you'd come to me in friendship? Like that stuff gives me chills. It's really interesting. It's not because I like it or agree with the Godfather, but I think it is compelling. And I want to express that strongly because I think a lot of people have found it compelling over the years. So hierarchy, I mean, it is compelling. Yeah. Who's in charge? What? Why does everybody want to listen to the Don? What is power and what is value and what makes these things move and tick and work, right? Like that whole opening scene, part of the point of it is to adjust your expectation of how all these things work. Yeah. He doesn't care about money and he's insulted by the idea that he cares about money. Right. He lives in a world of favors and he does what he wants and he's just happy to sort of kind of collectively have people in his pot, in his debt. Right. Well, and, and the beautiful the power to do that sort of thing. I love the set. I mean, it's probably too romantic for real gangsters, but I love that the payoff to that scene is you, you mm-hmm. see that scene, you've never seen the movie. You're like, okay, Bonacero is going to have to kill somebody. He's going to have to do something awful. Right. And then it's just make my dead son look good for his mother. Use all your powers, mm-hmm. all your undertaker powers. Yeah. It's a very nice payoff. Yeah. Uh, it's romanticizing something that's evil. You can't deny that either, but. I mean, uh, we'll talk about it. Maybe we should just talk about it now. I mean, this movie's relationship to its subject is an interesting one and a subject of endless debate. And what does this movie actually think about gangsters? Is it romanticizing them? Is it? I mean, ostensibly, the punchline of the movie is Michael Corleone has lost his soul. This is a very bad thing that happened to a man who could have been good. But does the movie actually make us feel that way or does it make us feel like yeah michael get him that's kind of the age-old question i think it works by making you feel both because you feel compelled by the way that shakespeare would he'd make you feel enjoy the tragedy of it right Uh right and that's what this movie does it makes you enjoy the tragedy of it yeah all and a tragedy loses its effect if you don't enjoy the ride and it tries to put some beauty into the tragedy Mm-hmm. And a tragedy is not relatable and, and worth watching if, if there's not some sense of beauty about it. And so, yeah, some sense of this capturing something big about life, about people, about like. But it's from the perspective of the family. So you feel what they value, even though you also kind of stand outside of it as an audience member. So mm-hmm. it's weird because you find yourself rooting for Michael at points and you're like, no, I don't. No, I'm not with you. But in the movie, you are. Right. But then you can kind of, and, I, and I'm not excusing what's wicked about rooting for Michael, but it is interesting that the movie has so much to say about things like hierarchy and power that you can extrapolate it into something that's good. It actually does yeah. parallel the story of David and or the story of Solomon. We were talking about this off mic. The way that Solomon takes power is a pretty godfather move, actually. Yeah, yeah I couldn't help but the whole way through think about David and Solomon and Rehoboam, too, and just different shades of those things, mm-hmm. right? But in one sense, Sonny's a Rehoboam type of character. Yeah. In another sense, Michael's a Solomon type of character. And so you, you do make those para- parallels. And, and what you really have is sort of an inverted hero's journey mm-hmm. for Michael Corleone. 
right? Refusing the call to become part of the family. He crosses the threshold. He goes goes and grabs the gun and shoots the guy who put the hit on his dad. And then he goes off and finds himself and his mentor comes back and, you know, he ascends. Mm-hmm. Well, but in this case, descends. Right. But it has some of the same thrill of ascension. Like we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's sort of the, we are it, watching it's a hero's it. journey structure, right? right? But mm-hmm. it is a, it's a descension instead of an ascension. And so there's a level of horror about it. There's um, a level of horror, but there's also the fascination of the movie is it's, it's there's the dual thing where there's a level of horror. And then there's also a level of, this is right. The, the young man becomes the king now that his father is dead and well, he has solidified his power and we, and we want that. And the fact that it's about loyalty to your dad. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thread to pull on. He's going to win because he's loyal to his dad. Right. I mean, and that's also why he's going to descend. Right. Yeah, well, it is fascinating. I mean, the first when he crosses the threshold, there's a couple threshold crossing moments. There's a famous zoom in where he's describing, hey, guys, why don't you just let me kill McCluskey? And it's very much like filmically it's we're crossing the threshold slow zoom in on mm-hmm. michael and uh, and then all the other characters laugh at him and he mm-hmm. has to uh, which is a great way to puncture that but there's also the moment where he moves his dad in the hospital and he mm-hmm. just said i'm with you now pop i'm with you now pop mm-hmm. and it feels almost unfair you know it feels almost not like shakespearean tragedy but like greek tragedy there where it's like because of his love for his dad he's just condemned to mm-hmm. become this monster like there's there's nothing he can do about it. His choice is to either write his family off completely, which I suppose he should do, you know, if you want to actually step out of the wor- movie's world for a moment. Well, the movie uh, stacks that against him too. You have this really happy wedding at the beginning, and he is an outsider at the happy family wedding where everybody's dancing and singing and playing and enjoying each other and all those things are happening, and he's like the aloof brat. Mm-hmm. With an outsider outsi- girlfriend, with, yeah. that, with the outsider girlfriend who's above it all, right? And that, and he kind of wants all to... set up morally to show him as sort of being the villain in that moment, mm-hmm. right? He drags Kay into the picture, which is an obvious act of defiance. Of here's my waspy girlfriend who doesn't really yep. belong here, but I'm going to make sure you all have to accept that she belongs. Well, here. and we do the thing where we're going to have the family picture. And then dad is like, well, wait, wait, where's Michael? We can't have the family picture without Michael. Mm -hmm. And so dad is like the alpha in that moment. And everybody's set up and ready to go. And dad's like, nope, nope, we have to have Michael in it. And then Michael alphas his dad in that moment by pulling her on. Mm -hmm. Which is awesome foreshadowing. Right. Putting her in that photograph. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Your fate is sealed, lady. (laughs) Yeah, and and dad's not going to actually step in or do anything about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Dad's not going to say no. Dad's Michael. That's, that's very, I'm sorry to draw the biblical analogies, but they're right there. I mean, I'm not sorry to draw them. That's a very David thing to do. David was a great, wise leader, and yet his children all, one way or another, went wild. And it says of one of them, his father had never crossed him to displease him at any time by saying, yeah. why, why do you do thus or so? Which is right. one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. <laughs> Parents, please displease your children by saying, why do you do this or this? So it's a good thing to do. But you have Don Vito Corleone, who's ostensibly wise, but he's got Connie, mousy little abused Connie. He's got Sonny, the alpha. Connie, who he, he let marry. A, Carlo. A, a little punk monster. Somebody that they couldn't trust with. Tom says, should we give him 
any role in the family business? And he says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Give him a living, but never let him know anything about what we do. Right. This guy is an outsider, and we mean for him to stay that way. And then you've got Sonny, who's wild card, fornicator, macho, jerk, lovable, but all those things. And then you got Fredo, who's just like- Dissipated. Drunk. And weak, just weak-minded generally. Yeah, just weak. And Fredo's story in Godfather Part Two, for those who don't know it, is is wonderful. The way that they pick up some of these side characters and draw them into the main story is powerful. But uh, yeah, and, and, and then you've got Michael, who is the best of the lot, I guess. But he's the war hero, and he's the one that's going to go on and not have to be part of the family business, right? And that makes him Dad's favorite. He can run over Dad in that moment, and why also he is the chosen one mm-hmm. in our movie. Because he's going to take the call to adventure. Yeah. Ultimately, or actually refuse the call. The real call to adventure would be to go out. Right. Um, leave all this. Leave but, it all behind. Yeah. It's, it's the inversion of the call. But everything's in, in, I mean, part of the, part of the beauty of the movie is it's very Lucas-y inversion of the hero's journey. It mm. is really just sort of like, I just sat there thinking, this is really naked. Like this is really like as naked as George Lucas would do it. No, it's one beat by beat. One, beat yeah. by beat. Like just the bones are all out there in the open. This is the next part in the hero's journey. And this is the next part, but it's inverted. But mm. look, it's inverted. But this time it's really inverted. It's mm. like, okay, I get it. It's right. an inverted hero's journey story, but it's still like, like, oh, the belly of the whale is Sicily. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> where you have this beautiful romantic journey where you don't have to worry about anyone or anything except courting your beloved beautiful Italian girl and mm-hmm. stepped into a fairy tale almost it's just yeah yeah the belly of the whale is a fairy tale mm-hmm. that gets interrupted with a car bomb mm-hmm. and now you're back in right <laughs> and man for such a when something's really well crafted, you have to take seriously the parts where it seems disjointed because maybe they're intentional. It fascinated me watching the movie this time that Apollonia gets blown up, and then next time we see see Michael, we don't see him like reunite with his dad or anything. We just it's years later. Apparently, yeah. it's like a year later. He's made a leap in terms of his character trajectory. It's actually very Shakespearean because Shakespeare doesn't always bother to give you the in between stuff. He's just like, let's get to the next good part. Let's just pick up. Here's where Macbeth's now is now. And if you listen to our booking episode, sometimes this bothers me because I'm like, oh, why is Macbeth so a thug when he seemed like a good man two scenes ago, or at least like the remains of a good man two scenes ago? And this is similar in that we're not going to see Michael be like, oh, Apollonia, I'm so sad. I must, now I'm hardening in my result. No, we just cut to now he's hardened. Now he's basically the Michael that we know. Well, I don't know. Any other big picture thoughts before we kind of talk through this bad boy? I mean, obviously the music's fantastic and the photography is my favorite. I mean, I can't name a movie that's shot in a way that is more appealing to me personally. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful movie to just watch, luxuriate in. It's one of those movies you can hit pause almost on any scene and you'll have something that you wouldn't mind throwing off up on your wall as a painting. It's, it's right up there with Spider-Man. Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's very classical in its filmmaking. It's not doing anything fancy as far as like, you know, it's shot, reverse shot. But it's very sophisticated in terms of its framing. If he's going to push in, he's going to have a great 
dramatic reason to push in. He's mm-hmm. going to, well, everything feels just like if, on the nose. Yeah. It feels on the nose in a, in a, in a. You have to be a genius to be the simple kind of. Exactly. Yeah. It's just so yeah. like in anybody, anybody else trying to pull the, the, these shots off feels really ham fisted. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's like everybody tries to imitate Shakespeare feels so stupid. Right. And yeah. did I say Shakespeare? Yes, you, you did. did say Shakespeare because I meant Spielberg, but <laughs> but <laughs> okay, the same the same works. Yes, but it is that sort of like zooming out of the Undertaker in bringing the Godfather <laughs> into frame for the first time. Yeah, yeah, or, right. And, or, and not or cutting or watching to the, the cl- for a while, wa- yeah. watching the door close on the relationship <sighs> at the end, <laughs> and it's just like that's such an obvious sort of potentially ham-fisted choice that pulls. The door is being closed on further relationship with. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, but I mean, it's my favorite ending in any movie. I think it's, it's perfect. And I love the fact that this movie is set in a world that can main, that that can carry those kinds of flourishes. It feels operatic enough that you can do something grand and operatic like that. And it doesn't, and you're not like, what, why, why are you being stylish? You stupid movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we talk about the first scene, Amerigo Bonazara is the guy's name, if you didn't catch that. And I don't know if you guys noticed this. He believes in America, this guy. He's a, he's a big fan of America and American justice <laughs> and traditional capitalism. He's made his fortune. He believed in it all, but it didn't work out very well for him because he, he went for justice after his daughter was horribly beaten and they got their s- sentences suspended and... I guess what I like about it from a just a storytelling perspective is I like how it just starts in the middle of something. I always find that kind of opening where you have to slowly piece together as an as an audience member where you are and who you're with and what's going on. You can you'd imagine like the hammy version of this where it's like let's introduce the godfather. He's this guy. He does this. He does these things. Here's some example of we got some wide shots and a little montage. You know, it's like the beginning of Casablanca where it's like here in Casablanca, robbers get away with things and everyone wants their passport and all this stuff. You'd imagine that kind of stuff. But Francis Ford Coppola is great at just choosing a little scene and entering it. He actually does the exact same thing with Patton. That's what I was thinking of. Which he wrote the screenplay for. Hey, let's start this thing with a speech. You don't know where you're at. And actually, it doesn't really matter. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think that in Patton, we even ever learned what that speech was or why. Although it does have it some historical job. precedent. But it's like, hey, here's Patton. He's a guy that's going to go through the enemy like a goose, go, crap going through goose or yep. <laughs> whatever it is. That's not me cleaning it up, by the way, folks. Patton does say crap in the movie because that's how old that movie is. They Crap was the provocative thing. Couldn't say the S word. But yeah, yeah, I love this opening monologue and I love the office and I love the the light and dark contrast between the office and the wedding outside. I mean, it really gives you that feeling of like walking into the light and your eyes having to adjust a little bit. It just puts you in a time, puts you in a place in a really visceral way. And we have our first taste of Marlon Brando as the Godfather himself. Such a parodied performance, a thing that ought to have lost all its power by now. But it's great. Works. It's captivating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always think it's not going to work, actually, because I'm always like, you know what? He's doing a thing. He's doing a voice and like he's he's wearing makeup and you he's got know. cotton balls stuffed in his right. Cheeks. This this shouldn't work. 
but then the guy is just so alive the there's stuff happening and again and not to be corny about it but there's stuff happening in his eyes and you're always wondering what he's thinking and marlon brando just exudes power and authority and kindly sort of grandfatherliness combined with a really scary i don't know I, what would you guys say makes this such a compelling and iconic and memorable like what what is it about this performance that's been so iconic well we're in an, another world that nobody's familiar with and the big question i mean it the name of the movie is the godfather and what does that even mean right and so then you have somebody who embodies something that feels completely otherly and does it with like without blinking without flinching without irony mm -hmm. he's just something other than you've ever seen before and it's interesting and compelling and it's hard to put your finger on it it's magic you know it's a little bit of pixie dust but yeah i think all that's true also we all want a king <laughs> <laughs> we just want a king we just want someone who could be the godfather in our lives and that's i don't know i mean so i want to say on the one hand that it works for the same reason that dumbledore works mm -hmm. i mean dumbledore isn't like a pure no, but he is. I think the same thing. He's but, he's more of a Dumbledore or Gandalf analog than he is like a Jimmy Cagney analog. He's yeah. more of a a father figure than he is a yeah. a fear figure. I think. I mean, he's scary. He is. You understand. You're not. You can't mess with him. Well, it's like if you were someone Dumbledore hated, you know, <laughs> you're that would be different. But you always have the perspective of being in the school under his protection, right. which is this film's perspective. You're part of the family. You're in the house. But it has some of that real feel. You know, when he says, Bonasara, Bonasara, why have you disrespected me? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the yeah. thugs who did this to your daughter would suffer this very day. Mm -hmm. You have that kind of authority feeling of, oh, I disappointed, like, I disappointed <laughs> the godfather. Like, <laughs> he wanted me to invite him over, and I never did because I was too good for him. But it's not, like, pathetic. It's, like, a powerful person saying to you, hey, why didn't you ever invite me over? It, it, it reminds me of kings in fantasy books if they're noble kings or mm -hmm. something. The quiet dignity. I'm not trying to prove to you that I have authority. I'm assuming it, and that's the basis for the way I carry myself and say things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things you can't, you have to cast for. You can't, somebody can't act <laughs> authority. It's just like somebody can't act sexiness or beauty or whatever. You, you yeah. have to cast someone who's beautiful or cast someone who's not. You can't be like, I'm going to cast the best actress and we'll make her beautiful. No, you cast a beautiful actress if that's what you want. Authority is one of those things that somebody either has i can't think of an example right now but i'm sure we could think of a movie where someone's supposed to play authority and we just don't we can think of any number of actors that you just would never buy or believe yeah right like chris pratt pops into mind <laughs> chris pratt is the godfather yeah right like he, i mean here's an example of somebody that you just he he's not choosing to play a goofball beta mm -hmm. he is a goofball beta and so there's just not much more that he can give you than that. Yeah, right? whereas Chris Evans, we don't like the guy, but he can bring actual Captain America energy when he wants to. That's He's just got that, whatever that he X can do factor that. is. Yeah. yeah. And certain actors, you can see them, even if they got started in comedy, they may be working at Pill with some typecasting, but they can drop that and, and carry weight and authority. Although I'm, nobody's springing to mind, I just have this like... Mm -hmm 
stereotype in my head of, of course, there are actors that they can do both and right. they have a huge range. And it's because there's more to them than. I mean, you can see how James Caan, who plays Sonny, probably could have. I think he was up for the Michael part and you could, it would be a different movie, but you could see how he might be able to oh, yeah. switch. Find like, his way in. Yeah, he's got, I mean, Michael would end up being a more vibrant dude mm-hmm. than the button down Pacino performance, I think. But you can see how they're both able to play various levels of authority and, and that sort of thing. Whereas you would never cast Fredo as that part. That guy was born to play, put upon saps and losers and, he just looks like it. Like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but he made a good living playing those kinds of <laughs> characters. Uh, and by the way, that is what he did. You, John Cazell, C- I think is his name. What, what else have we seen him in? Well, he's most famous for The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2. He's got a really good part in Part 2. He was in The Deer Hunter. I think he died young. He was in all these gritty mm-hmm. 70s things. Godfather's probably the most famous thing, but but he's great. He's great. I also just like the way the movie's written. I mean, that's an obvious thing to say, but movies don't often observe generational differences in the way that they write characters or if they do it's corny like the old person's talking like a real old person but just the way that don Vito is written as someone who english probably wasn't always his first language and he has a certain formalness to the way that he talks and he's he's kind of got an old school mythical feeling to him that the other characters feel much more modern you can feel the difference between Someone who came from Sicily and someone who's American born, Michael's generation all feels more comfortable with what America has, is becoming. Whereas Brando's like this figure out of legend or the old country or like Brando belongs in the Apollonia scenes. Like he, he comes from that fairy tale world and he brings a little bit of it, mm-hmm. its energy to his performance. But. I wanted to ask you guys this. I've, maybe we've already answered it, but this is as good a time to answer, ask it as anything because it is so much a part of what makes this part of the movie and the whole movie compelling. Why are people fascinated with the mob, do you think? Mario Puzo knew he wanted to write a book that was going to make money. And so he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll write a, the best mob book. And he was right. Everybody wanted to read that. Like, what what makes this such an effective hook? I don't know that I have an answer. I'm just... Or maybe the answer is already apparent. Well, the 20th century is such a, first of all, we're a young country and we don't have a lot of history of our own. Yeah. Right. So you've got cowboys and Indians, and then you have the next level up. And if you're tired of cowboy stories, what's the next generation of people finding their place and the Wild West of taming America and making modern America and... And settling things with violence, which is always going to make a good story. Yeah. Do we have nostalgia in the 70s for the time that our parents grew up in? Well, what's the most colorful and exciting thing that happened around then? Well, okay, we are talking about the 30s. If we're in our 30s and 40s and it's the 70s, then we're talking about the 30s and the 40s. We're talking about the mob. Mm-hmm. We're talking about that sort of that sort of thing, that sort of defined. Yeah, I guess it's important to remember if this movie's made in 72, they're, it's like us watching Back to the Future or something. Like they're telling a story about or us watching an 80s movie, Back to the Future is weird because it's also about the 50s, but right. it's it's like, here's the world as it was 30 years ago. Here's the world as it was when your parents were growing up. It's not as far removed as we think of it now. Yeah, it's just the equivalent of 80s and 90s m- movies exploring the 80s and 90s yeah. today. What's exciting yeah. and fun about the 80s and the 90s and what's interesting and what's 
what was going on? How is it different? How is it the same? What does it say about us? What does it say about them? What does it say about our parents? What does it say about the American experience? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The American dream, yes. The American dream gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that a bit. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, I think hierarchy, authority, mm-hmm. power. There is some curiosity like you just want to know about the Proverbs 1 invitation of the gang. Mm-hmm. What, what exactly are you inviting me to and what would it be like? to live in your world and to fill our nets with precious spoil and shed the blood of the innocent at will. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting. Yeah. I mean, and not all in an evil way, but also, I guess, relying on our sinful curiosity. I mean, I don't think watching The Godfather is a sin. I'm not saying that. But it, but, but it is appealing to you. Well, here's a forbidden world. Mm-hmm. Don't you want to know how it's like? I think there's that. I think there's also... One of the things that art does is gives us test cases. Like I can only live one life, but I want to know what would happen if I lived all the lives. That's a large part of why I read novels or watch Mm -hmm. films is to see how things work. Like uh, I would hope by God's grace, I wouldn't make Michael's choices, but Michael made his choices. And let's just follow that to its logical conclusion and see what happens and see. Yeah. And and I can learn something about myself and about the choices that I've made through through what so I, so yeah I don't think that the instinct's all bad although I certainly agree there is a a morbid fascination and a sinful fascination with it's something kind of it's something to be cautious about I mean the Bible gives you basically mafioso stories you can read the book of Judges and mm-hmm. you you are watching criminals destroy themselves for long swaths of Judges mm-hmm. you're watching insanity and. Well, the guy that, that I always think about the Godfather There's when I read of humor. the story of Joab. I know. Joab. Just, Joab's a mob boss. He just is one of the characters from this movie. Yeah. He, he keeps executing anyone who's about to take power away from him. <laughs> it, yeah. It, Joab's amazing that way. Yeah. And he dies like a mob guy, <laughs> as we already said. I mean, yeah, yeah, Solomon yeah. ascends the throne and David's like, hey, you better kill these people if you want your throne to be established. Be established. And Solomon's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then it says something like, oh, what does it say? When it concludes Solomon's killing of those guys, something like, thus his throne was established. Yeah, this is throne. I, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's something. And there's the guy that's not allowed to leave the city or, yeah. or he'll die. I mean, that, that I, I don't want to hammer these parallels too far home, but I think it is one of the reasons why a movie like The Godfather is appealing is uh, we, we don't have analogs to all the kinds of things that we read about in the Bible, but that kind of deal, that kind of like, <laughs> just stay in the city and I guess you can live. But if you go outside it, we'll kill you. Right. And the guy's like, well, I don't know, maybe I can go get my servant. <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> rules are the rules, man. <laughs> the rules are the rules. And it's just like, I don't know how to enter into that. I'm not sure. Like, yeah. What's the analog in my life for that? I don't know, but there's analogs in The Godfather. <laughs> yeah. So we have this beautiful wedding scene. We meet all these characters, and it's really well done. I mean, it's arguably one of the best opening stretches of a movie. It draws you into this world, draws you into it in a fun and beautiful way. I mean, it makes it look like Italian weddings are fun. You've got a lot of sort of shots of kids and there's a little girl de- dancing on the first time we meet Tessio who's going to say can you get me off the hook Tom there's a little girl dancing on his shoes mm-hmm. it's just a nice way nice unexpected way to to meet all these people and we're very quickly sketching all these characters in really quick bold strokes Sonny is a philandering machismo guy who it's going to run out and yell at the FBI for yep 
taking plates and grab a random photographer. I don't even know if that guy's FBI or just some poor sap that he wanted to, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He was there with his camera at the wrong place at the wrong time. So his camera gets smashed and he throws some cash at yeah, him. Yeah, well, he, just, <laughs> he just makes it rain there. It's a nice, so many deft bits of character work. You have Barzini, the, the eventual adversary and a photographer snaps his picture and he just taps his, his underling on the shoulder and the guy goes and takes the film and, Mm-hmm. Hands it to him. It's like, well, everything <laughs> you need to know about this cold-hearted villain of a gangster, right there. I mean, obviously you've got Michael and Kay, and get the guy who what's his face who's practicing his speech, his <laughs> thank you speech the whole time. Yeah, and the story, Luca Brasi. The story about behind that is wonderful. The guy just had a scene where he came in to see The Godfather, and he's a wrestler. He's not a professional actor. He kept flubbing his lines. He could not say it right, and so they're like. Let's just write this into the script. Let's shoot an earlier scene where he's nervous about thanking the Don and is practicing his thing. And so it's just one of those fun moments of improvisation that they they took a problem, which is we have a professional wrestler trying to act with Marlon Brando (laughs) and he's screwing it all up. And they made it into instead of a bug. A character beat. One of the <laughs> one of the most beloved character beats. May you have a masculine child. It's, it's one of those things that has <laughs> entered into the vernacular. So may your first child be a masculine child. So, pretty pretty sure awesome. I got told that before I had two daughters. So yeah, and we're gonna sketch in Michael and Connie, or uh, not Connie. I well, yes, Connie, but Michael and Kay, and he's gonna say that's not my family. We just have all this fun stuff. I mean, everybody at the time would have been aware of Frank Sinatra and the the legends surrounding how he got the role in From Here to Eternity. And I think everybody felt a good deal of schadenfreude and thinking that the only reason Sinatra has a career is because he knew the right people. The right people are the kind of people that look at him and slap him in the face and tell him to stop being a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he uses an Italian word for homosexual there. He says, you something, so I don't remember mm. what the word is. But huh. yeah, <laughs> Don Vito took some kind of pill, man. Imagine this movie does quite well in the, the red, red, the red pill. pill. Yeah, the red sauce pill. There you go, Ben. <laughs> Everyone needs that to get That was re- racist. Red sauce pill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nothing if not racist. Uh, I like the white sauce pill. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, there is, so here's a question. There is nothing to these characters. They're all types. I mean, there's, it's Sonny. He's the brash macho. It's Michael. I mean, Michael's a type too. I mean, there's really not a three-dimensional character you could argue in this whole movie. Maybe Michael, maybe, maybe Vito, but really they're all types. What is it that makes them so compelling? And, and what is, if you guys agree with me that it's genius, then why is it genius? Why do we love these people or enter into the, who they are? And what makes the character work in this movie work? Because there's actually not a lot to it. There's it's like waspy woman, macho Italian dude, drunk idiot is like... Well, on on paper, there's not. But there's a billion details in the way it's executed. Yeah. From the acting to to the costume design to the sets, even to little things in the dialogue where... Even where the the fat guy that's likable, that's hitman for Al Pacino... Mm, Clemenza. ...is making spaghetti with him for a minute, making meatballs with him. Yeah. It's just like, oh... That, they just uh, just warm. Yeah, it all I don't up. know that I really. Uh, I mean, I agree in principle that they're just broad types, but each on one paper. of on pa- on paper they're broad types. Mm-hmm. Uh, in casting, they're broad types. They could have been broad types if they were directed differently or acted mm-hmm. differently, but they all feel like real people to me. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, I think hiring a real Italian-American probably had a lot to do with it. I mean, he's just bringing specificity, especially to that wedding scene. It's like, I don't know, it makes you want to go to a Sicilian wedding. Both the weddings mm-hmm. in this movie do such a nice job of making you like the Italians. But for a movie that's famously <laughs> <laughs> makes us think we're they're all a bunch of hoods, writers take note of creative people. That That, that is the way you do it, is if, if you have to have a broad archetypical character, you find specific details. You you lend specificity to the broad archetype. I mean, it's how Charles Dickens did it. Jake doesn't love Dickens, and I have my problems with him, but it's why people love Ebenezer Scrooge is just the miser. But there's also so much that's specific about his brand of miserhood. And so we remember him, and we kind of love him. Because he's like, yeah, he wanted that guy to be buried with a hawk of holly through his heart. Or, I always get this wrong. That's right. Yeah. Buried in his own pudding. Boiled in Boiled his own, in own pudding. And buried with a hunk of holly in his heart. Right. That's a very specific insult that only a certain kind of person would say. And Sonny, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's just casting. You're just casting people that can bring an inner life to these characters. And you're also giving them all vivid things to play. Like, you're the macho guy. You're the loser. Like, so many movies, I don't have a specific example. Oh, I don't know. You know, it's the difference between the old Star Wars and the Star Wars prequels uh, han solo he's not there's not much to him but we know exactly who he is and what he's all about he's a cowboy cowboy guy and hero guy and wise mentor guy and dog guy uh, they're all really bold types and then you get to the prequels and it's like who is obi-wan like what's his defining character trait what what is the defining character trait of sam jackson's Jedi, I don't, I don't know. There's all kind of. It feels kind of mean. Yeah, <laughs> but he's a Jedi. It's yeah, so confusing. Yeah, it's like you got to choose something. You can, you can be whatever you want. You can be wise, swashbuckling, like. But somebody should be the swashbuckling Jedi. Somebody should be the wise and like Jedi. Somebody, you know, you gotta you gotta choose stuff for these people. You give, give them something to play, and then they can have some fun with it. But uh, that's that's how you do shorthand and stereotyping. Is you give them something specific and bold and broad to play, and then you find details that bring it to life. Uh, you got three or four different scenes of people appealing to the godfather. He can't refuse a reasonable request on his wedding day. So guess some guy that wants immigration issues. You've got Frank Sinatra getting slapped and told to stop crying. And you got the photograph. You got the introduction of... All the guys who do give their favors later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, immigration guy... He pretends he's a mob enforcer with a gun to yeah, yeah, protect yeah. Vito from being killed in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, I get bored of saying this, but good movies have setups and payoffs. This movie, yeah, does yep. it all. You can make a moment do more than one thing. It can be its own moment that's entertaining in and of itself or, or making a point, but it can also be setting up something that happens later. And... That just requires you to revise the script a couple times. Oh, we had a guy at the hospital show up. Why don't we make him the guy from earlier? Makes it a better movie. Okay, I guess that brings us to the most famous section of the movie, which is maybe the most famous, arguably the most famous, the the movie producer (laughs) guy and Robert Duvall's little little visit, I say with a chuckle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Usually I don't like this kind of thing. 
Usually, I we've talked about this a million times on the podcast and on other podcasts, when the character's just set up to be unlikable mm -hmm. so that we can then punish them and it can be real cathartic for the audience. This is one of the movie's tricks is to make everyone who's not a Corleone into a real <laughs> jerk. <laughs> but I don't know. Why don't I mind it? <laughs> why am I chuckling about this guy's poor <laughs> racehorse being <laughs> decapitated? <laughs> I guess I just like the idea that a bunch of goons snuck into his bed while he's sleeping. <laughs> How did they pull that off? It makes a nice moment in the movie. It doesn't make any sense. I'm sure it was based on real gangster, maybe not something that actually happened, but I'm sure it was based on an actual Hollywood legend or gangster legend of the time. But I don't know. You gotta look it up. I'm looking it up. You're looking it up. Was there really a horse head? <sighs> was the horse head in The Godfather based on a real event? Apparently not. As far as movie scenes go, it's a pretty shocking one. Right up there with the shower scene in Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, setup, for uh, this dopey article. <laughs> there, there's there's so no many. evidence that a real-life horsehead incident inspired Puzo to write the scene. <laughs> oh, no, now I've got to enter my email. And because... yet I needed 500 words for this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Clickbait. In fact, Puzo had always claimed he had never met any mafiosos until he finished the guy, blah, blah, blah. It was a real horse head, though. Twilight assumed real-life inspiration. Frank Sinatra, you don't say. Did you know that in the decades since The Godfather became a classic, the severed horse head has taken on a life of its own, for lack of a better phrase? <laughs> <laughs> it's now a common cultural reference, a punchline in sitcoms, and shorthand for you're dead. You can even cuddle in bed with your own non-bloody horse head pillow. Oh, good. So that was... Not worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really learn anything. I mean, people are just speculating. Right. Like, he was drugged, and then the horse was drugged, so they could cut off its head. <laughs> I don't know. I guess there's ways to accomplish that. If you've decided, where there's a will, there's a way. If you've decided, uh, I like to think that Robert Duvall did it all himself, that he didn't hire anybody since he was in Hollywood. He, he just... went home on a plane, though. Remember, he went home to personally tell Don. Yeah, Don that's true. Okay. okay, so they had enough connections yeah, that they yeah, could. Yeah. He's not the muscle. <laughs> I did find the narcotics dude likable. The narcotics dude. Oh, Salazzo? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So he is the guy outside of the family yeah. that you like the best? Yeah. I mean, he's got some iconic line. He's got the whole, I'm a businessman, Tom. Blood is a bit of big expense. <laughs> I mean, I like him. He just feels like a gangster from an old gangster movie. He's like what you expect. He's, uh -huh. he's I'm a gangster over here. I, <laughs> I do gangster things. And he does. I say I'm not going to kill you, but I'd like to kill you if I could, you know. I found an anecdotal inspiration. Anecdotal horse head inspiration? Mm -hmm. Oh, let's hear a it. A dog head. A dog head. That was nailed to family's door. So yeah, I'm sure that's happened. I mean, that feels that feels like the kind of thing that's be more surprised if it didn't happen to somebody at some mm -hmm. point for some reason. But no horse head, huh? That's too bad. Well, I don't know. Anything else to say about the the waltz scene? I mean, it's basically just I'm a terrible guy, and I'm going to talk about how terrible I am, and say a bunch of racist stuff, and say a bunch of sexually debauched stuff. Be a real jerk. <laughs> And I sure do but love you know my horse. A, but you know who's a real jerk is that Sinatra guy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it does introduce a little mm -hmm. bit of ambiguity in so far as it makes Johnny Fontaine sound like... A terrible person. A terrible person. And Vito's just all about enabling... As long as they're a terrible person connected to him, they can do what they want, and other people are just going to get killed if they stand in the way. Yeah. And so, it, I don't know, it just it, it makes you pay attention <laughs> 
to Vito's character or think about it. Extrapolate. Yeah, he seems like a kindly young or old man, but in his way. But if he really went to an agent and said, either your brains or your signature will be on this contract, like. That's how he's lived his whole life. Yeah. That's the warmth is just a mask and Michael doesn't need to wear it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he gave him a really good offer before that. Before he had the offer, he couldn't refuse. $10,000. True. $10,000 mm-hmm. $10, to just sign the contract, let him out. Would have been a very generous thing. Mm-hmm. Just don't refuse that sort of thing. Right. Nope. <laughs> then there's the detail that he did not get the ten thousand dollars once he signed the second contract. It was for a thousand dollars. Well, that's his own fault. He yeah. passed it up. That's true. That's true. Produ- the producer, Mr. Waltz, he could have just taken the thing. Although even there, it, the movie doesn't make the mistake that so many movies do, where they punish a bully so strongly that I end up feeling bad. Like, like if you kill Waltz, if you cut off his arm, if you, then I lose sympathy. But the fact that he brags a bunch about his stupid racehorse and then that's that's the punishment, it feels in the world, in the messed up morality of the movie, it feels proportional, almost like mercy. Well, all these guys, all these Mo Green and this guy, Waltz, they're all just like, you think you're a shark? I'm a bigger shark than you. And if you come back, I'll eat you. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're just asking to be eaten by the actual shark. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah, I suppose there is something. Uh, maybe that's why I chuckle about the scene. Maybe that's why everybody chuckles about Mo the Green scene. Green does the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> the exact same thing. Although the movie does a little bit of a disservice to Bugsy Siegel, who was, who was a really powerful, real I don't know. gangster. Mo Green felt more legit. I don't know. Well, that's what I'm saying is, you mean legit in terms of a, an actual counter threat to the... Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. It seems like, yeah, I'm, I'm remembering the scene now. He seems like a serious man. Like, he's somebody that him and Michael do actually need to talk and figure something out. He's not... You almost think that Michael's underestimating <laughs> him a little bit. Yeah, you almost do. But I mean, the way that the movie, so the movie's logic sets him up, like he uses the same racial slurs that Waltz does. And he, he's, he does the same kind of, do you know who I am sort of thing. And mm-hmm. it it just feels like it, the movie's lesson anyway is people never learn. Yep. <laughs> to not mess with the Corleones. <laughs> <laughs> you really shouldn't do it. It's a bad idea. <laughs> If you go to them in friendship, then <laughs> all, all kinds of nice things can happen. <laughs> oh, man. So we have Salazzo the Turk. I never remember this movie's plot, by the way. It's one of those things. I've seen this movie plenty of times. But like the the machinations, it's always kind of fun to rediscover them because it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to go do this thing. And then this thing's going to happen. And you know, I remember all the character stuff and uh, the violent stuff. But the who Salazzo is and what he wants and all that kind of stuff. It's the kind of thing that I like. It's fun to follow the strategy and stuff, but it never really sticks with me. I think I already said this on mic. Maybe I said it off mic. I don't remember. But I love the fact that Sonny sets up the whole movie by making one little slip up to Salazzo the Turk and making it clear that he would do narcotics. That I think I already said that on mic, right? So we're moving into the movie Crossing the Threshold, uh, whatever the part of the hero's journey is where, you know, Luke's parents get killed, whatever they are, where Aunt Beru dies. We're at that part of the hero's journey. Have I? Uh, have you guys ever read anything about Marlon Brando and Michael Jackson? Okay. They had 
a conversation that came to light later where a lot of details of Brando asked, I don't know, a lot of questions and got a lot of answers and a lot of tears. And it's all come out in recent years, but it's not been especially public, apparently, according to this article. I just... You mean Brando got the truth from Michael Jackson? About- uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean... You mean Brando did something to Michael Jackson? No, Brando asked a lot of questions about a lot of unsavory things and just got a lot of tears in response to certain questions. I see. And basically concluded that... Michael Jackson was a jerk? One could say. What was Marlon Brando's yeah. interest or involvement in What was he this? doing being an investigator? But, this is, this is, <laughs> no, but he wasn't. This is like the whole weird thing about it, right? Like... He was taking dancing lessons from Michael Jackson. Of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and exchanging them for acting lessons. Yeah, that sounds very Brando. So he was like this was like some Brando idea of like I'm going to I'm going to give Jackson act acting lessons and he's going to give me the dancing lessons that I want. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like this whole thing like he, he had difficulty teaching Jackson how to act because he has he had no emotional capacity. Mm-hmm. No emotions live inside of yeah, this you don't man. Yeah, you don't say <laughs> And he starts talking about... And then so he, he like starts to try to get him to tap into his sexuality. Which is what you do, method style. Like, let's find the thing that you can tap into in, in the interiority inside yourself. The, the And then discovers that the man is not able to be engaged sexually with anyone his own age. And then it goes on from there. And so then he talks to him about his dad and he starts crying about how much he hates his dad. Mm-hmm. And then he goes back, like, I don't know, this this like... Oh, this is actually a good way to understand what Mario Puzo did in The Godfather with the, with the Sinatra and stuff like that, because those are the kinds of stories that circulate around. You don't really know how true they are, but you kind of want to believe them because they're great legends and there's probably a lot of truth to them. And Puzo just took all the stories about the politicians and celebrities and people that were associated with gangsters from his time and put them into one package in a fiction work where you could print all the legends and make them as kind of legendy as possible. Anyway, yeah, Marlon Brando, interestingly depraved dude, had his finger and lots of pies. And so his conclusion was well, obviously, it would have to be children mm-hmm. based on this conversation, yeah, which well, is basically, I mean, I was like sort of skim browsing this thing. While we were having our conversation, it just kind of came up while we were in the whatever things I was searching on or rabbit trail I was following mm-hmm. with the Godfather. Whatever started with the horse head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it's... yeah. Marlon Brando. What a guy. His last movie directed by Frank Oz. The Score with <sighs> Edward Norton, Robert De Niro. A really dumb movie. Mm-hmm. Marlon Brando did not like being directed by Frank Oz. If you, can you don't say. That. Yeah. Wow. He said, you wish I was a puppet, don't you? So that you could move me by doing certain things that one does to a puppet. Um, <laughs> that was the big fight. Is that something to do with where he put his hands? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then De Niro had to direct all of Brando's scenes because Brando wouldn't even be on the same set with Frank Oz. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, just like, I just like the idea of poor Frank Oz, the voice of Fozzie Bear, <laughs> trying to wrangle Brando. He's Yoda. The other legend about Brando, I don't know whether it's true, is that he'd go on to a set and the first day he'd give 
two performances of the same scene. He'd give one that was just technical and one that was lived and real. And if the director didn't make him redo the bad one, then he would never respect this person. They had to be able to tell the difference between when he was actually bringing his A game. So so Brando would do, he'd still do the project, but he'd just do it for money and he wouldn't actually act for you unless you you were capable of perceiving such a great talent and you could recognize the shining sun in the constellation and of stars. And have the will to look at Marlon Brando and say that sucked, do it again. Mm-hmm. Yes, if that didn't factor into it for certain yeah. directors. Well, yep. See, he's supposed to be, and yet this was terrible, but also, and he's also supposed to be really hard to work with. Uh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But you got to have sympathy because this is the guy who's like, yeah, I think the Godfather had his throat slit, so he talks like this. Uh, and it's genius. I mean, he, he's known for that kind of off the wall, I'm just going to do something crazy and genius, but then being able to tell the difference between that and someone just being a narcissistic oddball that likes doing weird stuff. It's hard to tell. Richard Donner's Superman might be a good example of a place where Brando's maybe not giving everything to the project, <laughs> but he made a lot of money. <laughs> and he's he's good. He helps the movie. I mean he Oh yeah. It's good to have Brando and Superman. Like it, it it especially at the time, but even now it's like it adds some prestige. Similar to Nicholson being in the first Batman. All right, so we're into all the plot machinations. We're into Luca Brasi being murdered, sleeping with the fishes, and into Polly later being murdered, leave the gun, take the cannoli, all that stuff. What did you guys think of the the violence in this movie? It's, it was very famously provocative at its time. Now it's been parodied and done so much. I found it striking, but it was not what I expected it to be. You expected there to be more? Like, Yeah, I mean, if you've... For his, if the my movie experience of violent. everything downstream of The Godfather is Tarantino and Goodfellas and whatever else, and it's this is the famously violent thing, then I was pleasantly surprised by how muted it feels compared to all that it inspired. Right. It gave people permission, but once they had permission, they went crazy in a way right. that the movie The Godfather actually doesn't. I mean, it's violent. It's, I don't know, I'm always torn about this. There's something to be said for the argument that bloodlust is such a thing inside us that you just don't show a lot of blood because there's something about it that we like. And so you got to be very restrained in your depiction of violence. There's also something to be said for the argument that old John Wayne movies where he shoots a guy and the guy clutches his chest and there's no blood and he just falls over are really not telling the truth about what this device called a gun does. I don't know where I fall on that spectrum, but I think The Godfather's probably got some places where it could draw a modesty veil over the violence a little bit. I'd say it's certainly more tasteful than the things you just mentioned, Jake. Certainly more. Hmm. It certainly doesn't feel like Tarantino or something where he just likes the violence and wants to show up as much as possible. I mean, it's violent enough that I might wait 20 years to watch this again. Yeah, just, you know, it's like, eh. I don't. I don't need, need those images it. swimming in my mind all the time. I don't want that. Yeah, I mean, I find the garroting a little hard to take, and the Luca Brasi's murder is probably the one that lives in my head as unpleasant. Although there's some other things, just like violent details, not just blood, but like Carlo kicking the window out while he's being garroted. It just gives you the feeling yeah. of yeah. Ugh. That that actually might have been the most visceral 
violent scene for me. Yeah, you don't. I don't think you actually see any blood or no, anything. No, there's no blood, but it's you horrible. don't even see his face. You just, but it's just like, oh, Michael decided to have this guy killed in the most unpleasant way possible. It's it's what's the it's what the movie should do. It hammers home his Michael's fall. It's I've I'm going to tell this guy I'm not going to kill him, and then I'm going to go out of my way to kill him in the worst way possible. Let him know that he's being killed. Right. He's mm-hmm. going to know I was lying to his face a minute earlier when I said, I wouldn't kill you. You're my sister's husband. Okay. Just give me the information I need to know before I kill you. Right. And it's fascinating to think if he would have denied it in that moment, whether he could have gotten away with it, but probably not. He was probably, his number was up, I guess. So we got the hospital scene, kind of weird suspense scene kind of thing that you don't really expect if you've never seen the movie. Like, Mm-hmm. hiding in corridors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Very, very gritty 70s feeling in that part. Yeah, and then really we're going into, we're crossing the threshold. We, we got the big classic zoom in where Michael just decides to do it. But you feel like he already did decide, like you said earlier, I'm with you, Dad, I'm with you, that moment. And then when he goes up to the cop, and then when he gets his jaw broken. Right. It just feels like, ah, you're just, you're done now. Do you guys feel like this is the story of a good man gone bad? Or do you feel like it's the story of a guy that told himself he was good, but really he was always bad or does it matter? Like what, who is Michael actually at the beginning of the movie? I don't think Michael knows who he is. He's, he seems a little ashamed for not being on the inside of the family. But also proud not to be, I mean, the way he presents it to Kay, at least, is that's my family, Kay, it's not me. Yeah, but it it just, I just never, I believe that he's conflicted even when he says that. That's the read, the vibe, the performance gives me. And and once you trigger his family loyalty. Well, who escapes from mafia family by going off and becoming hero in World War II? Right. And we don't have any doubt that he's going to be able to to step in and, and shoot these guys. He's, you know, his brother mocks him as like, this is close up. It's not like you're <clears throat> killing guys from far away, but mm-hmm. like all that does is highlight for the the fact for us that- Michael has killed. Michael has killed. He's done these sorts of things. He's actually pretty cold-blooded. Like he's always been a killer. He, he found a righteous out, a cause, a righteous outlet for it. Mm-hmm. But actually- Yeah. Well, also, I'm not sure that it really matters whether Michael is good- or not at the beginning. I mean, it is in some sense just a Shakespearean broad arc that's <laughs> more about what it symbolizes, or it's more about the big picture than what's going on in, in Michael's head. It's more like this movie is a fairy tale. It is arc iconography. It is, I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. It's similar to Macbeth in that I'm always trying to figure out the interiority of Macbeth. And when I get to the end of it, I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. What really mattered was that monologue was pretty great there. And what mattered was Shakespeare is a good storyteller. And he doesn't care as much about the interiority. He cares about the the actions and how this person expresses themselves. And I don't know what I'm saying because it's not a lot of the fascination of the movie is who Michael is and who he changes into. but. I think you guys want to say about the big murder scene, the 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 McCluskey and Stilazzo getting it there in the restaurant, all that stuff. It is amazing how much it puts you in the corner of a killer. I mean, it is, if you want to make an argument that the movie's just immoral, I think that's the scene because my wife is sitting next to me. Michael comes out of the restaurant or comes out of the bathroom and she's like, shoot him, shoot him. Why aren't you shooting him? And he sits down. And she's like, it's what are you Hitchcock. doing? That's, yeah. that's right. There's everything about my that My wife Hitchcock too, actually. Moment. 
what did I just say? There's everything about that. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, we we know the gun yeah. is. We know the bombs are under the table. Mm, it's got to happen. The gun is in the bathroom for this whole conversation, mm-hmm. and now the gun is. Where is the gun? Right. Is the gun in the pocket? It's got to be in the pocket. Mm-hmm. Why did he come out? And it's because he wanted to sit across from him. And Clemenza told and him look to come him out in the eye. shooting. Clemenza told him, he told him to come out shooting. He told him to come out shooting. Mm-hmm. And he didn't come out shooting. He went and he sat down and he looked him in the eye. And then he pulled out the gun and popped him between the eyes. Mm-hmm. And then he turned and popped the other guy. And then, well, is he going to do what Clemenza tell the, told him and drop the gun and leave it there? Or isn't he? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he does it wrong. It's supposed to just slip out of his hand. But he, he, he lifts his hand. His, right. Man. More like a mic drop. Yeah, it's more, it is pretty much a mic drop. <laughs> I'm the Godfather now, <laughs> man. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great Hitchcock scene. You know exactly what's going to happen, and yet, you're, and yet you're biting your nails, waiting to see how it happens and whether it'll happen. And then it basically just happens, but you've been made to wait for it. Mm-hmm. You don't know whether the guys are on to him. You don't like, can they actually be this dumb? Yeah, they just thought. I mean, they were baited into thinking they'd done the smart thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Salonzo was. McCluskey's obviously just a, an idiot. Yeah. You always need the, the the adversaries to be a little dumber so that the hero can win. But I think this movie does a nice job of not making it feel like the deck is too stacked. Like, they had to wait until the last minute to figure out what restaurant. It was entirely possible there a guy on the inside wouldn't be able to figure it out and they wouldn't get the gun there in time. Like, they're they're making a bold play and it's it makes sense that McCluskey and Salazzo wouldn't expect it. Now, I don't know whether that translates. They did that whole fancy U-turn to shake mm-hmm. the, the tail. tail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And end up right at the place where they knew they'd be all along. Mm. Pretty great. And then we're going into Apollonia and Sicily and fairy tale land and Nino Rota basically carrying the movie for a good half an hour just with that music, which is so beautiful. And all the kind of feudal feeling of, I love those two guys, the the bodyguard guys. I, I love them walking around in the countryside with their vests on and their nice shoes and their slacks. I don't know why they're all not sweating like crazy. And I love that we can just have him see the most beautiful girl in the world and they look across at each other and the music swell. It's not for all movies, it's famous, movies like to do that sort of thing. But for all movies liking to do that sort of thing, you don't actually get a movie that is just able to to do that just a silent it's images it's music it's beautiful people just looking at each other and he accidentally insults the father and then he does that weird formal thing where he's like i'm going to talk in english for the benefit of the audience of this movie and have my buddy translate for the man but it just has this like kind of formal fun feeling and mm-hmm. yeah, but it feels natural enough like what I need to communicate is that I'm an American, actually, and I did not and maybe still don't realize the ways in which I may be giving offense here because. Yeah. 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 No, it's good. And then it's cross cut with the most gritty 70s feeling other part of the movie, where which is just uh, the wonderful relationship of Connie and Carlo. And it's plate throwing and he's gonna like whip her with his belt is like that's the one time where you have like a moving camera like the cam handheld camera is just like following them around the apartment as they beat the crap out of each other and it's just like it makes it feel like one of those grimy 70s kinds of movies all of a sudden we've already had a scene of right before that 
She just has a bruise. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Goes in. That wonderful little dinner vignette where we hear the mom say one of the only things she says in the whole movie, which is don't interfere. Yep. All that good stuff. I guess I should ask the classic question. Do you guys think that this movie is unfair to the women characters in the movie and is sexist for, for not showing their point of view? Connie's just the victim. And then once her victimhood has achieved its purpose to get Sonny killed, we don't care about her anymore and blah, 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 blah. This is a pretty classic criticism of the movie. So Movies are allowed to be what they're about. That's what I think. Right. This one is about the men. Yep. You could make a good movie about mob wives. I'm sure somebody has. But yeah. uh, well, actually Goodfellas is a good movie about mob wives, but or at least it has that element. But this movie's not about that at all. It's about Vito and it's about Michael. And that's really it. And I, and it sets up the punchline with Kay at the very end. The last shot of the movie is her being shut out. So that's what the movie's all about and it does give her the dignity of having a perspective on the whole thing mm-hmm. right before yep. it slams the door in her face. <laughs> it lets you know that she knows better. Yeah. We see her face. We know she goes from being satisfied to sort of realizing what's yeah, really exactly. going on. But Connie doesn't know better. Mm-hmm. And Apollonia doesn't know yeah. better. I mean, they really are just mob mob wives. I mean, maybe the movies are pretty, a little unfair to Apollonia, especially since we're going to make that actress do a nude scene. But this all leads up to Sonny's death, the most famous m- moment of violence in the movie. Well, maybe. I don't know. There's lots of famous moments. More famous than the horse head. Not more. Or... I don't know. It's pretty famous. I mean, mm. it is. I don't actually find him getting shot to be all that bothersome. What bothers me is when the guy walks up to the body and, and just. kicks him. Well, kicks him and then riddles him with more bullets. Mm-hmm. Just like there's a level of inhuman sort of like this is what you do to make sure a pig is dead kind of feeling to the whole thing that puts you in mind of what a real mob hit or something like that must be, I guess. But that leads into some of Marlon Brando's. Well, Vito took five shots and survived it. So Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's They were it. all told to leave it beyond doubt. So they sure did. Do you guys feel do you guys like Sonny? I mean, yeah. I he's he's likable in his way. I mean, he's it's just it just seems clear he's gonna die. He's gonna get himself killed. Yeah, I mean he's obviously the the dumb son, the the unworthy heir. Yeah. He's sympathetic. He feels like a good brother. I mean, he feels like... like It's part of it. He's going to stick up for his sister. He's You understand him being angry about his dad. You understand him just wanting his vengeance. You understand all those sorts of feelings. Yeah, I guess in, a, in any family, there's going to be a And sunny. you understand the fact that he was not wrong about the narcotic trade and what was going to happen of it all, even if he's responsible ultimately for how it played out. Mm-hmm. He wasn't wrong about the direction that the five families were going to go in. Right. No. how to get ahead of it. Well, also the scene where he opens his mouth when he shouldn't in that meeting with Salazzo and, the, and his dad says, oh, forgive me, you know, I spoil my children or mm-hmm. whatever and they, I indulge my children and, and it shows, you know. Yeah. You're like, actually, you have completely failed Sonny and he's going to die for it. Right. Like, you yeah. actually did fail to train him. You did indulge him. It's a very King David and his son's kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Marlon Bender has some of my favorite parts in the movie. After Sonny's death, he comes down. He's got that that wonderful mop of James Brown hair, all all frizzy, and Tom Hagen's getting drunk before he's going to tell him, and you've had your drink. And then he, when you can play, there's playing emotion, and then there's playing a character who has that emotion but is repressing that emotion or can't or doesn't know how to or won't express it. Brando's just really good at, this is a man that's not going to 
just weep for his son. He's going to get things done. He's going to say, all right, let's arrange a meeting and let's take care of the body. And he's never going to allow himself the a moment of just pure grief, but but he lets it all play out. If he does, it'll be off camera where right. it belongs. Right. And it'll be, and nobody will see it. and you Including you. Yeah. Including us as the audience. And presumably including his wife. Presumably he's just, he's that kind of guy. But yeah, Bonacera pays his <sighs> debt. And, and then suddenly we have that weird disjointed time jump where Michael's back in the picture. He's seducing Kay or, or seducing her back into the life. She, she goes with him because she's an idiot. I don't know. I guess she just really loves him. He shows up. He looks like the devil. And <laughs> <laughs> at the most inappropriate time, she's got her little school children. And he's like. I, the only, I, I think the m- most unbelievable part of the whole movie is that scene. And it's the moment where he says, I'm begging you. Mm-hmm. I need you. I'm begging you. I'll do whatever you want or whatever it is. I think that's the moment in real life where he maybe actually loses mm-hmm. this woman. If he plays the confidence man, maybe he pulls it off. But I don't know. That's just what I what it felt like to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I mean, like, like he breaks character there for half a minute in a way that seems like it should play, but feels like it wouldn't actually play. But is it is there another level where that's Michael Corleone <laughs> as a character breaking character like he's that's what he I thinks thought. he needs to act to get her and then he's acting in a stupid in a way that's not quite like we as an audience are supposed to see the character of Michael Corleone being a bad actor or being not as good of an actor or not being as in control there I don't know it it does feel like she should see through it it does feel like she should have nothing to do with this man that's how I took it some version of what you just said. I mean, she's, it makes her more complicit. I think it's a turnoff. Yeah. I think that like if Michael's cool and confident and comfortable and just a little, doesn't put her in the driver's seat there, he has a better chance of of pulling it off. But he puts her in the driver's seat. I find it hard to believe that she doesn't at that moment turn and start to remember you killed two people and you ditch me for a year and you show up and you're begging me. Like at that moment, she's empowered mm-hmm. with all of the bitterness and grief and trauma of the past year or so. And uh, I don't know. It's an interesting point. I mean, it is the only time a woman ever gets in the driver's seat at all in this movie. So huh. I think I think they must have been thinking about it or, yeah. or has allowed the illusion of being in the driver's seat at the very least. I was just going to say the way he plays it though, I mean, because Jake is right. I, I, dramatically speaking, it shouldn't work. But the way that he plays it is like, it's like what he's presenting to her is here are the words that say, I'm in desperate need of you. But listen to the tone of my voice. Look at my face. I'm in control here. In other words, there's a weird thing going on where it just feels like a completely cynical predator almost. Just like, I'm going to push some buttons here. I mean, to me, it feels, right like a, it feels like a prince in the most sort of feminist view of the patriarchy, sort of like, all right, I'm becoming king, so I'm here to collect my queen. And That's uh, how it starts. Just I don't, <clears throat> and I believe all of that. It was just that moment of I'm begging you that I thought, oh, I didn't expect that. And I'm yeah. not sure that I buy that. Right, buy that she wouldn't have a bad reaction to that. Yeah, yeah. but the way he says it is so like... It doesn't feel like a real plea mm. to me. And it feels like he's signaling to her that it's not exactly a, 
Yeah, I think I'm with you. It's like, hey, Kay, these are the kinds of things that people say to each other in these kinds of moments. And I'll go ahead and say them because I guess you deserve the dignity of hearing me but say But I'm really saying is you still need me, don't you? Yeah. Don't you? We both know you're getting in the cars. That's how it feels to me. But Well, one thing that's fascinating about the last third of this movie is that you really don't get to see it from Michael's perspective after he comes back from Italy. He becomes the cipher, the godfather. The scenes are almost always from someone else's perspective after this. Not totally, but but it's really... And we're going to go into the Mo Green scene. And it's like, we don't know what Michael's strategy is ahead of that. Tom Hagen is out. I mean, we're kind of in Tom Hagen's shoes. Like, suddenly he's not trusted or he can't... We, we can't know the plan. And we're almost kind of looking at that scene from Fredo, like... Hey, I, I made a cool party for you, Mikey. <laughs> like, Send all these people away. I'm the godfather. <laughs> and we'll just fly over Vegas. Get to the most wonderful scene in the movie. Very moving scene. Well played between Pacino and Brando. The garden scene with the old mm-hmm. Don who's repeating information and obviously on his way out the door. And these two characters that are play everything close to the chest in their own ways, kind of open up to each other a little bit for one one time before the old man passes. And I just, I think this is one of the best scenes in the movie, obviously, but also one of the best scenes in the, the cinema, maybe. I mean, it's just a wonderfully written conversation between these two. And I think it anchors the movie in real, genuine moral tragedy in a way that it wouldn't be just the whole idea of I did what I had to for my family. I never wanted to be dancing on another man's strings, but Michael, I thought that you'd be the one holding the strings. There just wasn't enough time. There just wasn't enough time. The wistful tragedy of that, like Vito really thought he could embrace this gangster lifestyle, use it to elevate his family, and then his and then his son could could be better. And now he's faced at the end of his life with nope. My son, there just wasn't enough time. And Michael says, you know, we'll get there, Pop. And that's a lie, of course. We're not going to get there. It's a nice lie for father and son to believe in that moment. And for all I know, the old man dies believing that. Well, he's playing with the next generation, right? He's playing with the grandson. He's playing with the one who represents that freedom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everything about it is symbolic. He puts in the teeth. He's scary. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're going to play chase each other and he's going to be shooting at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it wrong that I feel like the passing of a titan? You know, there's there's this genuine feeling of like, well, Don Vito Corleone died, you know, Mm -hmm. in that moment. And the movie wants you to feel it. And it is twisted, maybe. It's a, here's a thug and murderer. And he got to die in just about the best way. Playing with his grandson in the garden. In the tomato patch of all things. Which is a brilliant scene. Yeah, yeah, Brando is is great in that, and the little kid is, yeah. you know, I think the kid was genuinely scared of the, <laughs> you know, the orange peel thing, mm-hmm. and it's just, yeah, and the little kid running around still shooting him after he clutches his heart and falls over. It's just the one-two punch of of the scene with Michael, and then I think it's straight into that scene. It's just a beautifully done passage and a little boy remembers his sweet grandfather who <laughs> suddenly you're just at another point of that well and the other the, yeah. the other i think part of the genius of that scene is how it's shot where it's really shot i think from the future if you'll indulge me from the future perspective of that grandchild mm-hmm. yeah where you only right. get these brief little glimpses of brando actually you like you want more of him like you want to see 
what exactly did he make those teeth look like? But you only get that little flash here mm -hmm. or there, you know, when he cut the orange thing. And what's it like? Uh, only these like little glimpses of him through the through the plants and things in the garden, and it's like it reads like the memory of the grandson looking back on that scene, like yeah, trying to hold on to yeah. a couple flashes of the memory of his grandfather. Mm -hmm. And it's when it comes to things like that, it's like okay, how intentionally done was that? But man, it sure is evocative. Even if they were just editing it on the level of intuition, intuition, it works well. It makes you remember, think about your own grandpa yeah. and. Yeah, this whole movie has a sheen of nostalgia over it that's, for me, it's not so much about nostalgia for the 40s as it is just for a certain kind of person, a certain, like, like my grandpa. It does make me think about my grandpa. It does, what this movie actually makes me think of is going to McDonald's with my grandparents, and I'm old enough to remember when you could smoke in McDonald's, and I remember early mornings, like, the grandparents would order, like, an Egg McMuffin or something, and all these old people would be smoking in there, and they'd all have their shtick with each other. Like a guy would, you're working hard, Henry? I'm hardly working. Like they all had the stuff that they probably mm -hmm. said to each other every day. And to me, that just in my mind represents a feeling of a time when everybody knew their place and they mm -hmm. all just had their banter and they all kind of had their relationships with each other. And it's just, you don't go into a place where everybody knows your name anymore. And The Godfather evokes that kind of intimacy that kind of family relationships those i don't know i don't know there's people that probably don't have good family relationships or don't have good church relationships and they they must really feed on a movie like this like hmm. feeling these feelings of intimate family life and of community life that that they have no context for by god's grace all three of us have some context for them all right well i think we're to the best moment of violence i think in all of cinema the montage the baptism yeah. Montage. What a scene. This is ah man. It gives me chills just thinking about it. I mean, what a what a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scene of of horrible violence. I mean, this is something that you can only do in cinema. You can't do this in books. You can't do this in plays. I mean, you can to some degree, but cinema does it best. The juxtaposition of Michael, do you renounce Satan and all his works? Yeah. And then the next shot, boom, boom, boom. He's renouncing Satan while acting like Satan, you know, and all these people dying. The majesty and the feeling of the Catholic Church, the feeling of ritual, the feeling of generational passing of the torch, all this stuff all put together. Life, death, rebirth, Joseph Campbell. Ah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And then you got this organ music. This is, I don't know if that's actually what a baptism ritual, if they'd ask 4,000 questions of the Godfather and have him holding the baby the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but it sure does make for a great ironic iconography to, to balance against the, the scenes of violence. And this movie does do a good job of, for a movie about violence, they're going to find a different gag for each. Mo Green's going to put on his glasses before he gets shot. Like they're going to make each thing have its own kind of logic and we're not going to repeat a type of death guy in the barber chair guy on the stairs clemenza with his fake box of flowers lots of stuff that's just feels very gangstery now must must have felt more revelatory at the time fresh but i mean that scene's be, been redone a million times yeah and people have tried to live up to it and it was another scene that to me as watching it the first time felt like yeah i've seen this 
seen a million times. This feels pretty muted, but also it's it still stands as a really strong like prototype. It's the prototypical one. It's not the yeah yeah. I still find it very powerful. I know what you mean. I mean, we have seen this kind of thing, especially the juxtaposition of the innocent thing over here with the terrible thing over here. Although I'm not thinking of any examples. I, you know, I couldn't think of any example either, but I've, it is a scene that I still, I know I've seen it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be in like a, any kind of assassination scene. They tend to do it this way. Like, here's the guy getting ready for his day and then here's the assassin putting mm-hmm. his silencer on. You know, it's, it's it's just the standard way of doing building up to these this kind of violence, but the rhythm of it, the editing, the music. I I'm enough of a cinephile that this kind of thing can can make me cry, not with emotion about the characters, but just because I'm. It's like I'm looking at the Mona Lisa. I'm standing in front of it. Here is a perfect work of cinematic genius. Here is art with a capital A. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry that it's a scene of brutal violence, but I mean it is it is brilliant. And then the kind of deflated feeling of, we sat through that, and now we got to watch them clean up Tessio and Carlo and yeah. Michael putting the last little touches on his empire and getting rid of the last little threats, if that's what they even are. Pretty great. We've not talked enough about Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall rules in this movie. Robert Duvall rules, period. He does rule, period. I'm so used to him playing like the old guy in Jack Reacher. You know, he didn't talk like that, but. A Western kind of guy. It's mm-hmm. just the the button down. Tom so I, Hagen. I think of Max Mercy in The Natural. Yeah, as a a prototypical Duvall. Yeah, for me, that's like I don't know, and and the maybe the nearest analog for this performance. Mm-hmm. Even like the that movie's sort of always hinting at the Godfather. For sure, yeah. Backroom you know, kind of yeah, shenanigans. Yeah, the, ju- the judge's little blinds in his dark little room and mm-hmm. that whole world. But then Duvall's playing the reporter and he's just this little side character but brings a lot of color just by being his side character. You know, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, you're going to make me a great story. Mm-hmm. That kind of vibe. It's like whether you're a hero, whether you're a goat, whether what's going on up in that room up there, what's going on down here, what's going on with the girls, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're going to make me a great story. It just brings a whole level of dimensionality to that silly baseball movie. Mm -hmm. Like that's the kind of thing I love Duvall for when he can do things like that. And yeah, that's exactly what he, you take him out of that role. You take Tom out of this movie take that tom out of this movie mm-hmm. and you've lost a whole sp- you've lost a lot a whole color color in your, and in your character palette or whatever yeah. and it just says something nice about the family it, it gives you sympathy for don Vito corleone that he has this fourth son that he just took in mm-hmm. and but mm-hmm. but also they've obviously built him into a lawyer machine for their <laughs> empire right so it says something twisted as well Good actors act, great actors react, and Tom is such a performance of just watching and thinking and smiling mm-hmm. off camera. And early in the movie, Vito says to Frank Sinatra, you can be a man, and starts yelling at him. And we cut to Tom Hagen, and he's got a little smile. You know, he's like, he's, he's seen The Godfather do this kind of thing before. Mm-hmm. He sees the humor in it. And I love his little conversation with Tessio. Can you get me off the cook, Tom, for old time's sake? <laughs> Can't do it, Sally. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cold blooded. <laughs> it's so cold blooded. 
<laughs> it's awful. It's cold-blooded, and yet it's all got this kind of, we're old friends, old family. Tell Michael it was only business. He knows that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know you're going to have him killed. Yeah. So. And you're going to bring down all of us. So it's cold-blooded, but the dude... Yeah, no, the dude deserves it in, in the morality of the movie. Well, and in general, I guess, but... I mean, they all deserve it. Well, yeah, I just think that's how a functionary talks. He gets at something. Of, he understands that time. Like, that's that's the way a real guy in that real situation would kind of probably handle that. I got my lawyer, poker face. I underst- We both understand you're about to be dead, but what am I supposed to do? A little bit of slight 3% irony to what I'm doing here. Maybe there's some anger under there, but who knows? We're old friends, and I'm sorry you messed everything up for yourself. Bye. And all that without having to say any of it. So so you set up all these It characters. was a smart play if you didn't count on Michael Corleone being... If you thought Michael was just... If you thought Michael was some, anything but the guy who was going to be the godfather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to say, Ben? So you set up all these characters in the wedding, and then you spend the next three hours picking them off. <laughs> yeah. Until finally you've undone the wedding by... Carlo's dead. The, Car- the wedding, Car- the marriage itself is dead. Right, right after the wedding led to the birth of a child and a new godfather. Mm-hmm. Then you like undid it. Yeah, yeah. It just... It's, it's mythological in the way that it's, it's built. I mean, it is Joseph Campbell, but it's, it's wonderful. You know, Star Wars is the same thing. It's wonderful when you find a type of story that allows for such broad myth making we don't have to worry about being too joseph campbell here we can just be joseph campbell because in this world everything is a myth and everybody's a character and it's and yet it feels real and psychologically lived in and you know that the characters all have great interiority even if you're not allowed into it all the time and then i love the final shot i love him lying to to Kay. i don't know if you guys in watching the movie again do you think he's ever going to tell her the truth for just a moment there? He can't, of course. But he says, this one time, I'll let you ask me about my affairs. <laughs> I wondered. Yeah. I wondered what he was going to do when he said that. Mm-hmm. I, but I didn't wonder. Yeah. Like, I mean, it was inevitable. It was inevitable. But I did have, I think, less wonder and more of, what would you do if your choice was that he would say, like, what, what, what would happen next? Well, like, from Michael's perspective, it's like she's an idiot. Like She should have known better. Why would you ask me a question that would make me just need to lie to your face? Of course, that's what I'm going to do. And next time, don't ask me the question. Well, now what you've done by forcing the issue is you've shut yourself out of my heart. Mm-hmm. Which is a very man sort of a way to think about it. I mean, as a husband, like... I haven't murdered somebody and then shut my... This movie's a giant exaggeration of what I'm talking about. But I've had those moments where I'm like, why are you pressing this issue? Why do you want to go there? You're just going to bring out... And why are you going to go there now? Yeah, Mm -hmm. you're just bringing out the worst in me. Like, this is unfair. Stop it. This is your fault. I'm about to yell at you or I'm about to do something I shouldn't or I'm about to lie to you or whatever. And Or I'm about to go cold on you. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to say that because it's too true. But yeah, I'm about to shut you out if you just didn't ask and let me look at my phone and you look at your phone, then we could have a pleasant evening. But instead, sorry. And then they come in and they call him Godfather. By the way, in real gangsterism, Godfather's not like a, a thing. That's, it's, it's not like, and I don't know that it is in the movie either. I mean, I don't know that the movie's trying to say that a mafia Don is called a Godfather. But if you thought that based on 
Mm-hmm. Don Corleone is called Godfather, though. Yeah, by lots of people. Maybe that's just because he's... Apparently, he insists on it. Yeah. You didn't call me Godfather? Yeah, yeah. That opening scene, right? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that because he was actually the Godfather to that guy's oh, yeah, you're right. daughter? Yeah. yeah, but still. There's plausible deniability that he might, it might just be kind of a nickname. Like it's not, like Don Barzini is not Godfather Barzini, you know what I mean? Like, but, Yeah, that's right. But maybe Vito is. Well, but is he called Godfather in the last scene or is he just called Don Corleone? They call him Godfather. Uh, somebody comes and kisses Michael's hand. This and, is Clemenza. Yeah, Clemenza right before he <laughs> shuts the door in Kay's face. Yeah. So, yeah, brilliant, brilliant ending. I mean, I love the, the baptism scene. And then right up there, probably my favorite ending. I mean, it, I'd put it with John Wayne standing in the doorway and search the searchers. Doors are good endings. Freud would probably have something to say about this. But John Wayne looking in and seeing. Sure, Young does. Yeah, Young, I'm sure Young does. But yeah, I know it's an obvious metaphor. Nobody in the audience like, what did it mean when they closed the door in Kay's face? But I love it when a movie can just be a movie, when it can just be bold and cinematic and be like, here it is, all in a simple image. And it doesn't hurt anything that you've got that wonderful score kicking back in. And then I think they actually had a scene where, like in the novel, she goes and she prays for Michael Corleone's soul. Like she's in front of some candles or something like that. Like, but they're like, nah, we don't need that. We said everything we needed to say with the door slamming in her face. And and Diane Keaton does a nice job with just the expression on her face as that door closes. I wonder how many times they shot that. Yeah, probably a bunch. I mean, that's the kind of thing you, you got to get absolutely right. Well, Ben, how many things of cannoli out of famous ad-lib, by the way, Clemenza ad-lib that, whatever that guy's name is. Probably, maybe, maybe arguably the most famous line from the movie. I mean, it's right up there with make him an offer he can't refuse. Which I, which I love that they throw around that line, like as if it's the force may be, may the force be with you. I guess those are the two really famous lines. But well, and Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. That's a famous line. Mm-hmm. There's a handful of others. But yeah, that's an ad lib. Clemenza does not come back in the sequel because the guy was so proud of his ad lib that he said, "I want to write my own dialogue." And Francis Ford Coppola was like, "Well, you you can't." You have Did to- they go back and put the "Don't forget the cannoli" scene in because of the ad lib? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think that that. that because it's a payoff, right? That line comes as a payoff. You know, he's like kissing his wife goodbye and saying goodbye to the family. And he's like, got to go to work and do a thing. And mm. so I was like, don't forget the cannoli. And so right. the payoff is leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah, I think it was just a bit of verisimilitude, if I understand correctly. Yeah, we want to have kids playing. We want to have the wife. We're going to juxtapose that with mm-hmm. the brutality of the murder. But then the guy that plays Clemenza found a way to juxtapose it even more brilliantly by just... Leave the gun tape. All right. It says, the scene where Polly gets popped begins with Clemenza leaving his house and his wife shouting, don't forget the cannoli, a last minute dialogue edition from the director. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, Clemenza wanted to write all his own dialogue for the next movie, so they replaced him with a different actor, which is too bad. Cause that's too bad. He that's really awesome. too bad. He's very... And I, we didn't talk at all about the scenes where he's teaching Michael how to, mm-hmm. well, how to make spaghetti, but also how to assassinate a couple guys. Mm-hmm. And he, he brings a lot of that, like, just old school gangster energy. And he also brings Italian uncle kind of- He's got Uncle Polly vibes. Uncle Polly, yeah. He's going to get in his boxers and go to sleep on a cot during the montage of the <laughs> <laughs> gangster war or whatever. It's those kind of things that make this movie so memorable. It's all the little human details amongst the myth-making. All right, Ben, how many 
jars of cannoli? No, cannoli is like a bread. What is cannoli? I don't even know. <laughs> cannoli is... Oh, is it a pastry? I think it's a pastry. It's, 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 a, it's a pastry. It's like the hard, crunchy pastry shell around something filled with cream or custard. Yeah, I think I've had it before. It's really good. Yeah. It's really yummy. Yeah, I think I like cannoli. You like cannoli, Jake? I don't know. You'd, you'd bring the gun. Leave I'd the bring cannoli. the gun. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You yeah. like guns. Jake Very loves much, guns. Yeah. Tasty. Yeah. Jake yeah, begged is... us to watch The Godfather. He's like, there's guns in that movie, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Sonny's guns when he wears that wife beater. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love a movie where a bunch of men are around a table and they all like have their shirts undone or, or one of them's in a wife beater and they're all smoking cigarettes. Like for that alone, this movie gets a thousand points. Ben, how many bags of cannoli? Like how many just cannolis? Yeah, okay. That's fine. That's fine. The plural of cannoli. Wait, no, no, hold on. Oh, I, I'm, I'm dumb. I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm doing here. I think cannoli is actually singular in, in plural. I was about to ask if it's like deer. Yeah. How many cannolis out of 47 do you give to Mario Puzo's The Godfather, a Francis Ford Coppola joint? Yeah. Out of, wait, out of how many did you say? I have no idea. You said 47. I said 47. I'll give it 47. 47? Okay. Perfect movie. Yeah. Jake, same question? As a movie, as a piece of art in and of itself, sure, I'll give it 47. As something that I care about and whatever, watch again, I give it 35. There you go. I give it full 47 out of 47 cannoli on both counts. I really like this movie a lot. I do not think that a diet of such films or a diet of constant rewatches of The Godfather is good for anybody. And I do not, by God's grace, subject myself to that sort of thing anymore. But I am glad we went back to it and enjoyed talking about it. And I think it's a pretty profoundly great and enjoyable movie, minus about six seconds of nudity and maybe a couple flashes of violence that are too much. But yeah, it's a great movie and I love it. And I love the music and I love the photography. Oh man, all the shadow. We didn't really talk enough about the Gordon Willis. I mean, what is there to say? It's great. You can't just keep saying it's great, but man. And apparently some of that was problem solving. Like you you have to light Brando's makeup in a certain way so that it works. You have to light it from above. So mm. he ends up getting a lot of shadow. shadow and sort of satanic. Like it's a fun movie. If you ever just want to watch certain scenes, like you, you can watch, you can kind of read characters, you know, somebody will step out of the light into the darkness as they make a bad moral choice. It's one of those kinds of movies that's not afraid to to just go big with its production design and its lighting effects and stuff like that. All right. So lots of cannoli for The Godfather. Lots of cannoli for The Godfather. You know who else deserves cannoli? Who's that? I'll tell you, Jake. I'm glad you asked. It is Timothy. What is it that makes Timothy so worthy of cannoli, would you guys say? There's never been an offer he... Didn't refuse? <laughs> couldn't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a pretty cool power. Well, yeah. That he can refuse any offer? Yeah. Even your brains or your signature will be on this contract? That's right. He's able to refuse and walk away. He's just not going to be threatened or coerced. Wow. Yeah. He's like impervious to bullets. Yeah, I guess so. That's pretty great. Is Timothy Superman? Well, is Marlon Brando Timothy's dad? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's yet to be seen. That's yet to be seen. Yeah. We'll find out. We will find out. We'll find out. Well, gentlemen, I think you'll be happy to know our podcast on The Godfather is at least somewhere in the vicinity of as long as The Godfather. So we have fulfilled 
the promise that we make to our listeners. Where are Make you listen longer to us than you spend watching a movie. That's absolutely right. Hey, you could even play this while you watch The Godfather, and it could be like a commentary track. Make your own commentary track, and you will be a happy person with a well-spent life. Speaking of well-spent lives, one way that you can spend your life well is by spending a little bit of your money on patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. You get us about 50 bucks further. We'll meet a goal where we can talk about another Marlon Brando movie, Superman colon the movie. (laughs) Not just any Superman, but Superman the movie. We'll also talk about Superman 2, Dawn of Justice. We'll talk about, which by the way, Godfather Part 2. They didn't want to call it that. They wanted to call it something else. Coppola was like, I think we should make a sequel that has Part 2 in the title. People will like that. And then they did it, and it created the convention of naming sequels number two. So thank you, Godfather Part 2. We have Ghostbusters 2 has that to thank. All the, t- all the famous twos, Men in Black 2. We all have to thank the Godfather 2. What was I saying? Sanity at the movies. Yeah, we'll talk about Batman. We'll talk about Batman 2, colon, Batman Returns. That'll be a lot of fun. Superman the movie, a gritty 70s movie that's not so gritty. And not so seventies. <laughs> well, folks, no, it is seventies. I think it's I think it's late seventies. Yeah, yeah, it's like seventy nine or something like that. All right, folks, thanks for listening. We're so glad that we could bring this to you, and you know, until next time, take the gun, leave the Godfather. Just take the gun, man. <laughs> take the L. <laughs>